0: Rely on on X Hunt when I'm hunting turkeys. It is an invaluable turkey hunting tool. You never want to find yourself out on the water fishing without your essentials. So it's best to always pack a Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie to protect against the sun. Man, I was just in Hawaii and I had my Columbia PFG Solar Stream Elite hoodie with me. Many of you know Axis deer is considered to be the best-tasting venison on the planet. I've been hearing that for years. And that those deer cause some ecological harm. Well, Maui Nui venison is bringing those Axis deer to the market. So you can get some fresh cuts and sticks shipped to your door. Visit MauiNuiVenison.com That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I-Venison.com Use promo code Meat Eater for twenty percent off your order. This is the Meat Eater podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug bitten, and in my case, underwearless. the Meat Eater podcast.
1: You can't predict anything.
0: The Meat Eater Podcast is brought to you by First Light. Whether you're checking trail cams, hanging deer stands, or scouting for elk, First Light has performance apparel to support every hunter in every environment. Check it out at firstlight.com. F-I-R-S-T-L-I-T-E.com. Is being a master fly tire a thing, or is that just a description?
2: That's just a stupid description. Oh. It's not like Somalia. <laughs> yeah. or-
3: exactly that. Like somebody probably just labeled you that, right?
2: Yeah, one time I got a label, it was like one of the top five tires in the the world. Sure. And the, the ironic part was I was the only tire for like three years. So it's not something that I wanted that label with because it causes a lot of haters. Oh really? Oh yeah. They're like uh like to me, fishing is fishing, but in fly fishing, you have a lot of pretentious motherfuckers that uh are you recording, Phil? Uh, oh, please God, yes, I, I am recording, but I have not this
1: been switching great. cameras, but we've got it all on audio. Yeah. We're good. We're going I'm to glad go. he's saying it, But so how I don't many have people are, are competing
4: in tying that are actually fishing? We're joined today
0: by one of the top five fly tires. Please, <laughs> really God, no. top, top five in the world. <laughs> the entire world. The entire world. One of the top five. Santau. Welcome. Thanks. What do you think he of that He was trying title? to say that off air. <laughs> Not. He was trying to say it off air because he was saying it with a certain eye roll. I want
1: to hear more about. A
2: eye roll. I want to hear more about what attention. you were getting at. Well, the uh, with the advent of social media, you have a lot of people that are on there more or less just for the Insta fame. No. And the haters? No, he's oh, gonna be talking. He's not. gonna be talking
0: about haters
2: next. I love no, it. but like, what's your probably, Instagram handle? Probably about five out of the the ten people that you'll see post on there don't even fucking fish. Mm-hmm. They just post flies just for the likes. And you would see, you could look at them, and you, they'll be like these super colorful flies that I don't know what the hell they mimic, but yeah, they, they, they ar- pretty much yeah, it's more artsy, right? And it is a form of of the fly tying fly fishing industry. Is some people will just tie just for the tranquil, uh, tranquil aspect of it, and for the mental health, but the vast majority don't even tie the or fish that you see post up on there, and then uh,
0: so there's a so there's a social media. Uh, let me say something else too. The, what started this thing is we have him described here as a master fly tire, but also a master <laughs> sergeant. So you are a master, like indisputably,
5: <laughs> that that is that's true, A right.
0: master sergeant in the U.S. Army. Yes, questionably. A master fly tire, questionably lowercase Very questionably. m, <laughs> lowercase m, uppercase m in the military. Lowercase m as a fly tire. Like you're not a certified master fly tire.
2: No, that is just labels that will <laughs> people give I mean, for whatever reason. People like to label everything in in the fly fishing world. Like you got these master casters, master tires, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. To me, fishing's fishing.
0: Yeah, you know what? You want to know the most annoying thing fly fishermen do? What catch and release everything? No. No, that doesn't bother me. I'm glad. I wish everybody did that. Because that'd be more fish for me to eat, right? The most annoying thing they do is they have taken certain fish and they've broken their name down to letters. GT. So a giant Trevally becomes a GT. <laughs> Why is a bluegill not a BG? <laughs> it's like it doesn't or like a yellow perch. Oh, you know, I was out for YPs. <laughs> LBs, YPs. You know
4: what w, uh, why are you not hitting DVDs. the bobbers
0: strike indicator it's so obvious
4: Well I mean that's
0: just like <laughs> he it's, was it's he was bobber.
1: attacking uh, pretentious carp fly fishermen the other day oh, which I totally agree with I was doing that Yeah we were yeah. talking about how stupid but it listen, is
0: Listen I fly fish this summer more than more than any person in America
1: <laughs> Really mm, that's how much I fly tied this Didn't summer Didn't
0: see you do it not once fly in Alaska time. That's how much I fly fished Mm -hmm. this summer more than any other american
1: (laughs) master angler
0: Mm
3: -hmm. up Mm -hmm. at the uh Mm -hmm. at the Mm -hmm. spot up there
0: (laughs) i mean i have hours probably two (laughs) (laughs) into it oh then me and yanni fly fished uh went fishing cutthroats on the i'm not gonna say like i'd love to talk greater detail about it i have never seen anything like uh this lake we rode horses up to hmm. in Wyoming. Hmm. I have never ever in my life seen cutthroat fishing like that.
3: Nice fish, and it's some super little... crazy
0: cut
1: Bonneville. Bonneville. Now you're giving away where you were, dude. Un... <laughs> yeah,
0: like unbelievable, unbelievable.
1: Big black spots.
0: What's that mean? Oh yeah, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. The fish.
1: Yeah.
3: Did you release them?
0: Uh, we killed three.
3: How big are we talking?
0: Uh, probably 18 on the top end. Sweet. Probably nice 18 cuts. on the top end. Yeah. And you'd look for them, you know.
3: Sight fish for them. Oh,
0: so much fun, man. Maybe, maybe fu- like fly fish. Because I would kind of outgrown it, but it made me kind of love it again, man.
3: Well, you had fun with all the times you went fishing with me. Oh yeah. Did you abbreviate cutthroat or did you call them cuts? Cutties? CTs?
0: <laughs> <laughs> C- giants, Be- they're no. giant, they're giant CTs. BCTs. Because it's special BCTs. The yeah. B- yeah. uh, get back to the arts and crafts. I'm, yeah, no, I'm only here. I'm only joking. So, so in the fly tying world, um there is there's a social media element to the fly tying world and there are fly tires that don't fish. That are. that are just in the craftsmanship. Yep. The artistry. Yes.
2: So, uh, like, you got you got a mix of people that will try to showcase their flies that do a lot of fishing. Um, they t- showcase a lot of different guide flies, and then you have other ones that will one just tie.
0: Explain that a guide fly.
2: Guide fly is like basically a fly that's really easy to, to tie that will catch San fish. Juan worm. I yeah, see. like a San Juan worm, okay. an egg, or a midge, or something like that. You bust uh, them out, and clients are going to lose them. Then you have other ones that will tie like these super intricate flies that have like a, a ton of uh, material, a lot of different wild colors, and so there's a there's a big difference. Flies that have been known historically to catch fish for decades, in some cases even hundreds of years, like the, the Royal Coachman, for example. Then you have these other funky wild color flies that people that aren't into fly fishing per se they'll look at them and they see all these wonderful colors and they hit the like button. So that's that's disparity between the two. And like my heartache with it is that you have a lot of new people that have no idea what the hell they're doing when it comes to fly tying or fishing. And they'll see some of these flies and they these some of these individuals have like pretty large accounts and they think that's actually a fly that they should be fishing with or learning how to tie. And in reality, they're they're totally wasting their fucking time.
0: But
4: outside, So do you like
2: tying you like tying stuff that can be fished? Yes. That's what my my Pretty much my account is based off of flies that actually work. This is the most
0: amazing. This is probably, I mean, I haven't, you know, I'm not like a hobbyist, but this is probably the most amazing fly I've ever held in my life. That thing's awesome. It works. Dude, like, like, yeah, it is unbelievable. The artistry and then the, the life that's in this thing.
2: Yeah, so a lot of these are And how much flies,
0: it looks like a
4: sculpin. And do you feel like that would catch a fish, Steve?
0: I catch a lot of fish. Feel, feels like <laughs> it's When I fishy. say that, I'd catch a lot of kinds of fish.
4: Uh, but does a, a fly like that earn you a master title? Or do you have to tie specific flies in order to be a master?
2: No, uh, basically, there's there's really n- no criteria. Like, to me, that's a stupid label, Master Tire. Uh, I put
6: it in the script. You guys can blame me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know?
2: <laughs> uh, to to <laughs> me, <laughs> like, I wouldn't even come close to it. Like, you have people that have been tying for, like, 40, 50 years that have set the, the foundation for everybody else that is starting or has just started in the last 10, you know, 15 years. And they're the ones that came up with the innovations of using different type of materials where there was, like... Uh, using deer hair at one point in history or parts of a pheasant or a muskrat or whatever the case may be. It wasn't me. It wasn't like anybody in this generation. Those guys are the master tires. They're the ones that, you know, wrote the books that showed people that you could use hair from a llama and catch fish with it. None of us are very innovative nowadays. I mean there were people that will label themselves as such. But those folks that from 40, 70, 150 years ago, they're the master tires. Is, the there, tires.
1: Uh, is there some specific old school tires that you you emu- emulate
2: or like really you're into them? Uh, yeah, more or less because uh, of the their personalities versus... In so, a lot of cases also, you know, their flies are exceptional. But one of the local guys here, Kelly Gallup, mm-hmm. he's the one that came up with a lot of these different flies here like this... Sex Dungeon, the mini Sex Dungeon, him and his crazy fucking names. But they actually work, and they catch a lot of fish. And then other guys like Pat Dorsey out of Colorado yep. that fishes a lot of tailwaters and basically mimic all his his guide flies off of what the fish are eating there. And they, they work like crazy. Uh, that one box there has like a bunch of 24, 26s that are flies that Pat designed, and they work. So those are just a few of the guys that, that I have looked up to over the years, and they really one know what they're talking about and two also they catch a lot of fish so it's not like they're just coming up with crazy shit that don't work the stuff that they they put in their books the stuff that they talk about all are proven patterns that, that work everywhere in the world we're
0: gonna we're gonna cover off on your life history a bit but just just to just to tee it up and then we got to touch on a couple things um you were born in vietnam in vietnam and, grew, vietnam. and then grew up in in pennsylvania but you spent some number of months in in, a, in not in Vietnam.
2: No, uh, for like the first uh, almost a year and a half of my life, I, I lived in a refugee camp in Malaysia. In
0: Malaysia, so uh, okay.
2: Okay. my my dad was in the military in Vietnam, and uh, as part of the South Vietnamese Army, if we would have got cu- or he would have got caught, he probably would have been executed. Yep. And so as uh, after the fall of Saigon, the uh, the North Vietnamese and the Communists started you know sweeping down further south. And the town that I was born in is called Bac Lu, which is all the very southern point of Vietnam. So that gave us a couple extra years, but eventually they would have came through there anyways. Um, and so we they like, gave you extra years, yeah, because they were still working from from uh, what they renamed the Ho Chi Minh City on the way moving down to the southern point of Vietnam, and it was uh, but not like you talking like post 1975, yeah. Yeah, they really. were still fighting their way south or they, just moving their just way moving south? Just moving their way south yeah, and basically you. implementing communism in like yeah, every yeah. single town. Got it. Town
0: there. Got it. Yeah. So they weren't encountering like resistance all the way south. No, no. Yeah, I see.
2: Yeah. Basically, I mean, I was the opposite of most kids that grew up in Vietnam. I came from a very well-to-do family and uh, my grandfather pretty much owned the entire like port. Mm-hmm. So he got all the royalties of the ships and stuff coming in. I had pretty much everything that a kid could want growing up in Vietnam. And then to basically know, and, and my this was my parents. I was so young, I had no idea of the shit. But what they told me was that all that was going to be taken away. And uh, also at the same time, my father run the risk of being executed. So we literally left in a banana boat. I mean, we fled out of there in a boat and landed on the shores. You want to talk
0: about bad luck. <laughs> An actual <laughs> banana boat. <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs>
5: right. And
2: we left uh, there and went to uh, the refugee camp in Palau Badong, which is... About the size of four football fields, but it housed at any given time about 10,000 refugees. So it was packed like sardines in there. And that's a sour subject in itself because I refuse to eat sardines because that's what we had. That's <laughs> oh. <laughs> what we were given as far as Is right, that right, really? A can of sardines and a bag of rice like every day. Who, who ran the camp? Uh, the Malaysian government. They ran it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, uh, totally uh, off subject. Well, as uh, Well, similar to the subject, but on the trip there... Where while we were on the boat, they suffered probably about 35% casualties from dysentery and uh, other diseases. And so, like, as a, at that time, I think I was four and a half, and I was seeing, like, babies and people just being thrown overboard as they died. And that, that, like, left an imprint in my head for a long time because I started having nightmares when I was a teenager, basically just waking up and... And well, also being able to avoid disease at four and a half years old, yeah. it seems like a minor miracle. A whole family made it. So that was a minor miracle in itself there. But uh, there was a lot of people that died and they just like chucked them overboard. And it was actually Thai pirates that saved our asses because the, the entire ship was out of water. And so we were getting raided and everybody was like swallowing all their jewelry and all that stuff because that's what they were going to set their, their future on. But in exchange for basically uh, pillaging the boat, they gave us water, and we made it the rest of the way to Malaysia. What year were you born? I was born in 74. Oh, you're 49. Yep. Be 50 in March. What was the island called again? P- Palau Bidong. P-U-L-A-U-B-I-D-O-N-G. And you guys spent how many months at the camp? Almost 18 months there. And then, uh, and then
0: from there to U.S.?
2: Yeah, the U.S. wasn't my parents' first choice because um, we had no family over in the U.S. We had family in Europe, Australia, and other places. And so they they applied for political asylum in all those other countries, and they all told us to fuck off, and the U.S. was the only one that said yes. And, that's how, and then it was a, a Mennonite family. That's how I ended up in Pennsylvania. It was a Mennonite family from this church called Groffdale Mennonite Church that ended up basically picking our family name out of some refugee book and then sponsored us and helped us with the paperwork to get to uh, the U.S. And we started off in like Oakland, California for the first, uh, I think it was almost a year there, living in there in the city. And then uh, eventually they got us to Pennsylvania where they helped my parents settle and find work and whatnot.
4: The the manner of speaking for the Mennonites didn't rub off on you. Uh, (laughs) No.
2: (laughs) I think the military soured any of those beliefs that I might have had growing up. (laughs) You know, no, but uh, they they yeah. did lay a pretty good foundation because uh, it's basically you learn to appreciate things a little bit more and coming from that type of culture. I mean, we went to their churches for a little bit, but they allowed us the freedom to basically, you know, worship how we saw fit. Yeah. And, That's awesome. Yeah. That's amazing.
0: You know, our my mom and dad's church when I was a little kid, they had sponsored some South Vietnamese refugees who'd been in the military. And for, I don't, I don't know where they went, but they came in and they stayed there. And my dad and him would ice fish together, which he had to have thought was the wildest thing in the world, right? To like all of a sudden come to the U.S. and like instantly be ice fishing. Um, but but they just... I don't know. I'd love to find out what happened to that family. But it yeah, was, we it still was, actually I, I stay was, in touch I with was them. I was probably like four or five years old. Oh, you you stay in touch yeah, with them. Yeah, we still stay
2: in touch with them. They're, uh, my mom is uh, still very close to them, so they, she still lives like 20 minutes away from where they are. Hmm.
1: Were you guys... Near Lancaster,
2: yeah, actually, yeah, 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 Lancaster County.
1: Yep,
0: yep. All right, hang tight. I'm going to talk about some stuff. If you got any comments, feel free. Okay. I mean, as a master fly tire,
1: <laughs> or a master sergeant,
0: <laughs> or a master. Yeah, you can you can weigh in as a sergeant or a fly tire, uh, as you see fit. Oh, one thing. What was I got to replug it? Um, I got to replug it. Where is it? If you have an event planned, <laughs> if you had an event planned in northern Michigan and you need a my buddy's bar, my buddy has a new business. He has a camper trailer rigged out like a bar. So if you're having an event, wedding, whatever, and you want a bar, there's no change of money. Like well, you hire his services, you buy the booze. They, he picks up the booze, pulls the bar up, all the mixers, custom cocktails at your event so your guests just walk up to the camper trailer full bar back there
6: love it he's gotta he's gotta do like a tiki bar version of that and then we'll do like a meat eater podcast well him and phil do a collab yep, yeah exactly.
0: him and phil will do a exactly. collab we'll
3: send him exactly. some forest floor foods garnishes for his bar too
0: oh, there oh. You go. oh are you serious you better be i'm serious you don't don't throw that roamingnomai.com. roaming roaming N-O-M-I, so RoamingNorthernMichigan.com. Packages, prices, phone numbers, and all. Matt Drolls. very dear friend of mine from growing up. A lot of hunting, a lot of fishing.
1: A lot of drinking. A
0: lot of drinking. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of drinking. Uh, too much drinking. um What else we got? Oh, season 12 announcement. New, so a bunch of new meat eater episodes premiering. When is this?
6: It launches on October
0: 12th. Yeah, premiering October 12th. So you go find them, go to our meat eater website or our meat eater YouTube channel. So the website or the YouTube channel, October 12th, bunch of new episodes. We have the episode coming up of uh, hunting black bears in a wetsuit, uh, all kinds of stuff, big mule deer, big elk. Lots of cool episodes, big squirrels, October 12 on the meat eater website and on the meat eater YouTube channel, brand new episodes. You can catch them first there. Also have a live tour coming up in early December. We don't have all the dates yet. Starting like the first week of December, like we're going to, it's going to be a bus tour. We're going to do, I don't know, like 10 cities in 13 days or something like that.
6: You'd love wow. those live tours.
3: Are going to do, like, Tales from the Tour Bus? It's going to be like <laughs> Tales from the
0: Tour Bus. Big <laughs> trivia component to the tour. Spencer, is, Spencer Newhart has to go to all tour dates. Is he driving <laughs> the bus? He's driving the bus. <laughs> He's driving the bus. So it's going to be, we're, yeah, we're doing a live tour all over the damn place. Uh, in a bus, which is, I kind of like the idea of this bus thing. In the tour bus. Spinal tap. So stay tuned for that. You better buy some tickets, man. Um... Better buy some tickets. Got a new calendar out called Meat Eaters Dirty Dozen. So it just so happens... Hold it up. Oh.
6: It's coming soon.
0: Yeah. Picture that you make 12 seasons of a show, and then you got 12 months in a year. At some point, someone's going to be like, I got an idea. So this year calendar, every year, every month, you follow me, every month is a year. Yeah? Yeah. It's genius.
6: Look at that facial expression.
0: 12? I don't know. 12
4: smirks of Steve. 12 years. 12
0: years of ma- of the show captured in 12 months. So like January is I don't know what the hell. 2012 years ago. You
6: can see Steve age ever so slightly.
0: Oh yeah, a lot, dude.
6: No, nah, no, no. I
0: don't um, think a lot. Just a little. 12 years smirks. Um so check that out. Also, oh, Phelps on un- uh Phelps Unleashed. Why does it say don't read this?
6: Because <laughs> <laughs> I put the whole description in it, and it takes a long time to read all of it. Those are just some highlights Oh, that you can hit.
0: Well, Phelps' Bugle Tube is, is improved. I'm just going to skim through it.
6: Yeah, So
0: ahead. Jason Phelps, who comes on the show often, host of Cutting the Distance, founder of Phelps Game Calls, has a new generation of the Unleashed Bugle Tube. I didn't think that there was a problem with the old one. But apparently, uh, never satisfied. So, basically, people that had the unleashed tube had various comments about it, and Jason, being the obsessive that he is, has gone on and address various condoms uh, comments. One, the new version of recycled plastic. That's cool. Uh, guys had a some people had a problem with the the, the mouthpiece. So now you can remove the mouthpiece, meaning your tube comes with a mouthpiece on it, but some people like the smaller aperture. So now when you get it, you either like the mouthpiece, which I I think the mouthpiece is great. I don't know why you wouldn't like it, but some people don't want the mouthpiece. You just blow straight into the tube. comes with the Easy Bugler and the flared mouthpieces. It's lighter. So 12.5 ounce, 20 inches in length. So V2 version 2, he says it gets the same exact sound in a little bit smaller package. They dress the whole thing in ne- uh, in neoprene. Reduce noises from t- touching on brush. And adaptable. So a complete calling system for any calling style with one purchase. Two comes equipped with a flared mouthpiece for diaphragm calling. Earlier when I was talking about people not liking the mouthpiece, that's what I meant. Um meaning there's a there's a reed piece that goes on it too. If you don't like using diaphragm calls, you can use the reed mounted on the bugle tube, or you can pull the reed off, put the flared mouthpiece on it. It fits over your mouth better. Or if you want to go ultra lightweight, I suppose a fellow could just pull the freaking the flared mouthpiece off as well and run it that way. Outstanding back pressure for no articulation, devastating bugles. Mind bending screams. Who writes this copy? Is this you, Corinne?
6: Nope. <laughs> mind bending. Let's
0: think about no, this for it's a minute. Not me. Devastating bugles. Love it. Just knock them over dead with a bugle. Mind bending screams. <laughs> Makes you, him you, go bend crazy. The, you bend their mind and <laughs> devastate them. Thunderous chuckles and grunts.
1: I'm sold. We need a sound effect there. For the, <laughs>
0: the Unleashed V2 is a new standard that all. Beagles will be measured against. Now, I gave a buddy my mom to borrow. I let my buddy borrow one. Um, He went out, but he's got nothing to gain from this. He went out of the way to text me how wonderful it was, and they killed a bull. Good on him. Yeah. You know?
6: He What's said the it was the shit. Mind
0: bent. He said it was the <laughs> shit and bitching.
1: <laughs> wow. <laughs> 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 we
6: need to add another Yeah. <laughs> yeah <I need> some...
0: <laughs> so the new V2 is out uh here's a lengthy one this is interesting L- a lot of the news is full of uh a lot of uproar going on around refuges oh okay, cal's covered this a fair bit wildlife refuges in 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 lead ammo okay so certain refuges you have states that are getting rid of that that are banning lead ammo um Banning lead sinkers, fishing sinkers. Um, switching those over with sinkers that when you bite them, you hear your teeth crack. Uh, and there's a thing now where certain wildlife refuges are looking to ban or ha- have they implemented a cow or not implemented it yet? It's a plan to implement a ban on lead ammo in Wildlife refuges. I think <clears throat>
4: that there's probably some that always have had. Yeah, for sure. In I've, the regulations. Yeah. But, okay. you know, because one of the, the interesting things, right? When you bring up refuge, it, um, 99% of people go like, well, migratory birds. Yeah. Right. And for how many years now has it been illegal to use anything but non-toxic ammunition for migratory birds?
0: Since when I was a little boy.
4: Long time, right? So, um, I had to go through each one of these and make sure that there was big game hunting, uh, as a, you know, legal means of recreation on each one of these things. And, and you can hunt white-tailed deer or, you know, Blackwater refuges on here, uh, for Sika. Um, and so, uh, yeah, you, you would have to switch over, but yeah, I think in some regulations, uh, it's just straight up non-toxic across the board. Got it. Which is kind of an interesting thing, right? Because we always complain about how complicated regulations are. Yeah. But neither here nor there.
0: So the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service looking to add or or there's a proposal or a new rule going into place to, to ban traditional ammunition, which we'll call lead ammunition, on eight national wildlife refuges, including Blackwater... Chincoteague, I don't even know how to pronounce that one. Eastern Neck, Erie, Great Thicket, Patuxent? How do you say that? Anybody know?
4: Close well, enough for me.
0: Patuxent <laughs> Research Refuge, Rachel Carson Refuge, Wallops Island, uh, the NSSF, NSSF, National Shooting Sports Foundation, Uh, shared a letter that they had written to Martha Williams. And Martha Williams has been on the, on the show as a guest. Cause Martha Williams who heads the, um, us fish and wildlife service used to head Montana's state fish and game agency. So in that capacity, Martha Williams was on the show before we have not had her on in her current capacity, but would love to have her around and talk about some of this stuff. Note to Corinne down mm-hmm. there. You get that
6: Corinne? Got
0: it. Um, so that'd be interesting. So the NSSF shared a letter, it's, it's sort of an open letter challenging, um, challenging some of the assumptions within the lead ban. Tackling first goes on like like any good compliment sandwich. It congratulates the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for expanding hunting and fishing opportunities on the refuge system and then gets into the meat of it. And it it lays out this interesting argument that the, so the U S fish and wildlife service is tasked with protecting wildlife populations. Okay. And because there is a lack of any evidence that lead contamination from ammunition is having any population level impacts on wildlife. There's no sound reason to ban lead ammunition. Meaning bald eagles. Are, are, it's commonly pointed to bald eagles, like a bald eagle can get onto a carcass. Anyone wants to argue the truth of this is just wasting their time, like this is a thing that can happen. A bald eagle can get onto a deer carcass that someone killed with land ammunition, the bald eagle can eat that lead ammunition, and the bald eagle can die from lead toxicity. It's just like this is not a debatable point. That is a thing that happens.
1: And there is a very few bald eagles around at one point because of not because of lead not because of lead because of ddt, DDT but now the eagles are back to bring this full circle yeah partially
0: full circle we just mentioned the Rachel Carson refuge Rachel Carson wrote if you you've heard people over the years mention the book Silent Spring Rachel Carson wrote a book called Silent Spring about the devastating effects of ddt on birds it was a so it was a Insecticide is that correct?
4: Prolifically used insecticide.
0: An insecticide. If you watch old movies, that they like to have the thing where they're spreading DDT and kids are playing in the clouds as it goes (laughs) down the road. Rachel Carson's *Silent Spring* made the case of how DDT was devastating to birds. DDT gets into a bird system. How it would impact the bird is the bird. It would for some weird reason I have never studied up on would cause the bird's shell to get very thin. The bird incubating its own egg would crack its own egg. The oh, the, the shells got so thin that a bird would crack its egg trying to incubate it. And this devastated a, a bunch of raptors, eagles, peregrine falcons, um ospreys, all these other birds got devastated from DDT. DDT this is like DDT was having a absolute population-level impact on birds. DDT was banned. Since then, bald eagles have recovered so much that they were, they're one of the very few species to ever come off the endangered species list. I think 2% of things that go on the ESA come off because of recovery. They recovered. However, a bald eagle can eat lead ammo and it can die. A bald eagle can hit a wind turbine and it can die. A bald eagle can get hit by your car and it can die. A bald three e- strand
4: barbed wire fence.
0: A bald eagle can hit a three strand barbed wire fence and die. On and on and on and on and on. One of the things that can kill a bald eagle is lead toxicity. So the argument here is without being able to point to any population level impacts of lead ammo, how can you ban lead ammo in protection of wildlife populations? Um, and th- this letter makes this case. This letter also points to a couple of things like this recurring, and you see this all over the place, this recurring idea that there is a lead toxicity element to humans from eating harvested game, which is Completely unsubstantiated. The only time they've ever gone do is they went into North Dakota and tested a bunch of hunters for lead, and the the hunters all had lower lead than people that live in cities. The reason people in cities have high lead is because up until the '80s you, they were putting lead in fuel, and that was a soluble lead. So I'm not going to go through the whole letter, but it's really compelling. But it's like it's this thing where if you want this is the thing that happens so much in in anything contentious, anything political is if you're pushing for a thing that you want to be true, like you're sort of pursuing an agenda that you have and you welcome, you welcome information, but then you wind up welcoming like somewhat suspect information. If it helps make your point. And and I think that the, the, the issue here, the reason we keep talking about this is the issue here is, as eight management agencies, states, whatever, try to mandate a move away from lead ammunition, I, I think it's important Like, at least tell people the truth. Stop acting like there's a human health concern when no one has been able to substantiate it. Don't act like there's a population-level bald eagle concern when nothing substantiates it. If your argument is, that if you kill a deer with lead ammo and leave it out you could kill a a bald eagle have that be that right and and people and you, make the call you can mitigate this
4: which this is one of the th- there's some things in here that I I don't like the way it's written and
0: there's some things that they included that I do like but um, what, tell, tell me some of the ones tell me tell me a highlight of each of those
4: so um population level Effect, right? And we've covered this many times, so it'll just be really brief, right? They are talking about bald eagles and and most of the and seems like all of these refuges are in bald eagle territory. Got it. And that's the raptor of concern. But if uh you had a, a refuge system in an area that overlapped with uh condor populations, uh a condor death could have a population level effect, and then it would be necessary to take Uh, further precautions, right?
0: Yeah, because a condor is a population level impact.
4: Yes, exactly. Um, The other piece of this um, is you can mitigate that uh, raptor eating off your gut pile by uh, removing the guts from the field or by uh, burying uh, the guts on site. So, This weekend, and I apologize to uh, some of the folks I know, but uh, lead kills really well. And I went out and shot a bunch of Upland birds with seven and a half shot lead. And I made the decision to package up, even though I was like way the hell out on BLM ground. I made the decision to remove all the guts and the carcasses from the from the field.
0: So if you're in the heat, you're gutting birds, you're gutting into a bag and just throwing the bag into your game bag.
4: Which eventually became a really horrible, disgusting bag. bag yeah. yeah, but yeah. it's not going to go kill something I didn't intend to kill. So I did like the the fact that they provided a, a good alternative, like a common sense alternative.
0: Yeah, and in this letter from the NSSF, um, they, they applaud education efforts, they don't, they're not chastising people that are making non-toxic ammo. They don't use the word non-toxic. They're not chastising manufacturers of they're sort of pointing to they're sort of applauding the free market economy or the the the, the choice, but pointing out that um I would not have guessed this uh some of the percentages on on some of the percentages on use of ammo. Where is this stuff?
1: Oh, the 1% of, uh, were you looking at the rifle ammo? Yeah. I saw that that
0: too. Um, the copper is 1% of center fire ammo mm -hmm. used. Yep. My social circle, uh, uh, like my social circle, which includes people that, that use copper for a handful of reasons, some performance issues, some lead issues. uh, I would, it reminds me of one when I have a skewed sample size in my social circle. It's like we were doing the kids trivia and, and my younger kid had to guess what percentage of kids went fishing during the pandemic. And he thought that ninety some percent of kids went fishing right. during the pandemic. <laughs> He's, like he had a very yeah some biases. Skewed <laughs> it's like that's all I did.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well,
0: that's all my friends. He's like everything. Everyone yeah. I know went. Here mission. it is.
1: Non non lead center fire <laughs> rifle ammunition makes up the smallest share of the market and is approximately one percent of all ammunition produced.
0: So yeah, but it produced, so that inco- that includes all target.
1: Sure, it's. Ammunition. I mean, when you are buying a. case of cheap 223 mo to you know just go do some shooting.
0: spring is a great time to do something with your family do some spring cleaning which i kind of started today outside planning outdoor activities which i'm always doing taking a little trip to hawaii with your kids for spring break which i just did which was great you know what else you can do for your family this spring? You can shop for life insurance with Policy Genius. Make that part of your financial planning for the year. I've said it before I, a thousand times. I'll say it again. When my wife and I, when we started having kids, we got serious about life insurance. And, man, I felt so much better after we did. With Policy Genius, you can find life insurance policies that start at just 292 bucks per year and see how much you could save. That's policygenius.com. The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun, is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using OnX. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using OnX, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on on OnX, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before, or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds, this app will help you find more turkeys. OnX Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code Meat Eater to receive twenty percent off your membership at OnXMaps.com/hunt. This turkey season. Hey, man, after years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything, it's that there is always a catch. So when I heard that for a limited time, all Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, I thought, well, what's the catch? But it turns out there isn't one. Mint Mobile's secret sauce is that they sell wireless service online. They cut out the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. Ditch overpriced wireless with Mint Mobile's limited time deal and get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. To so get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, Go to mintmobile.com slash meat eater. That's mintmobile.com slash eater. Call your wireless bill to fifteen bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash meat eater.
6: Forty five dollar upfront payment required, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speeds lower above forty gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details.
0: I'm gonna or make whatever. this I'm gonna make this relevant to our guest. Watch this. When you're tying flies, are you using non-toxic or do you ever tie a fly with lead?
2: One of the most common uh, means to weigh down a fly is using lead wraps.
0: And you're still using it?
2: I use it partially. They have the alternative where it's stainless steel to also weight, but in some some patterns, the lead works way better. Lead split shot. It. He's like, yeah. lead
0: till I'm dead. Is that what you're trying to tell me? And then
3: also weight with the, the split shots.
0: Yep.
2: It also
3: wraps really nice. Yes, it does.
0: <laughs> it does. Uh, I would view, I would imagine that I would imagine that the amount of, you see fishing get rolled into this. I, I do not see this being fishing's
2: problem. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yeah. There's very few states that outlaw lead weights. I mean, I know yeah, New I York, know, man. New like, York was one of them. I went up I there for some, um, lake birds. run, uh, salmon and I was missing some weights. So I went to a local, uh, tackle shop to get some, and all they had was the alternative. I'm like, what the hell? I, yeah. I, I had no idea. It kind of like blindsided me that I couldn't get lead weights.
0: I, I get, I get the lead. So, just for for folks listen when we start talking about lead split shot, you're, it's a different thing. Lead split shot is not. Like, there's different ways that lead gets introduced into to wildlife. Center fire, like deer. Okay, deer hunting. That's introduced because you shoot the deer. And you got the deer and your bullet fragments, and there's lead around. You leave the guts, whatever, later on, you throw the bones in the ditch. Stuff eats that. They ingest lead unintentionally. Split shot and steel shot, or sorry, back when you could use lead to hunt ducks, and split shot, you have it can enter a, an animal by an animal could get hit by a chunk of that lead and not be lethal. Then it has lead in it, but they pick it up. As grit. So or they pick it up, they just see something shiny and different and they're down there feeding and they ingest it. So the lead sinker thing is that they're just intentionally ingesting it. It's not getting like blasted into something. It's being picked up, not eaten along with flesh. Is that clear? Is that yeah, a horrible job? And I think a lot of times hosting?
1: a lot of times they're just picking it up as they're feeding on the butt. It just happens to end up in the gut in right?
0: It. Oh yep. Got it. As I they're straining think. through the bottom. Yeah. Yeah, But I just, man, uh, I just feel that the fishing thing has to be just like almost
1: a non-issue. I, don't, I think there's places where there's a carpet of leadhead jigs on the bottom of certain places.
3: Oh, yeah. I can name a few. <laughs> 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 I could go there
1: and. But I, and, I mean. I can name one Lincoln hump that's got
0: about, oh, yeah. about 40 pounds of my lead.
1: On. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but, you know. What I, what I think is interesting about this is the NSF is weighing in on something from the Wildlife Service, this agenda, but that agenda had to come from outside. You think it's being
0: imposed on the Wildlife Service? I don't know. Doesn't I, don't, I don't know about that.
1: No? It's, it might
0: be. You know, like the, the the stuff in Alaska with them trying to – with them trying to subvert Alaska's ability to manage its wildlife, right? That came from on high, mm-hmm. for sure. That came from like it, 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 I'm not a conspiracy theorist, generally speaking, but I'm I, I believe that that was driven by donors, mm-hmm. that that was driven by. Pli- now and then, when you see something in politics it's so like, what? Do you remember when? Who the hell was it that got elected for mayor in New York? And right away, he goes after the Central Park horse. Carriage Rides. Oh, de De Blasio. Was it him? Yeah. De Blasio wins to become mayor of New York. And his first thing is Central Park Carriage Rides. You're sort of like, this has to be from a donor. It's so out there and so outside of the concerns of voters and so outside of what your mandate must have been. When you were elected, that there's no way this wasn't a quid pro quo, right? From a donor class.
3: Yeah, I don't even really understand, so like, understand. Everybody in you're... the city's like, "What?" Yeah, <laughs> you know? I, that's what I'm thinking right now. I don't really understand, like what, like he just didn't like the horse. This is
0: did like, they were mean to the horses in Central Park?
3: No. Meaning it was so outside of anyone's
0: concern. It was so outside of the campaign, and you get it. and You're like, that is like I don't know this for sure, but. That is satisfying a particular donor who made a deal.
1: Like set the horses free kind of yeah. yeah. I mean, I don't know, Cal. Do you know of like outside forces that were pushing this agenda? Or is it just...
4: I mean, the, the lead free thing has been around for a yeah. really long yeah. time. Um, The refuge system has uh certainly like a lot more traffic, right? Like mm-hmm. think of like the bird watching community and refuges. Um, so there could certainly be some lobbying from, from different groups there for sure. Um, you know, I, I do think about like the, um, uh, where we were hunting seek deer deer, mm-hmm. like think of the amount of copper in, uh, you know, like a 50 cal muzzleloader, uh, sabbat, or whatever or the equivalent like 12 gauge i mean that's a chunk a chunk chunk that's a big chunk of copper like that's not uh just falling out of the sky that's we're digging that out of the ground there too it's not like that's the thing doesn't have cost right so that's the
0: point this letter raises is that lead is comes from recycled car batteries lead ammunition comes from recycled car batteries and it points up just the tooling and sourcing meaning if all you know it's a little bit like uh extremes. If all states right now were to somehow miraculously say that you couldn't use lead ammunition, there's no way they would ever satisfy. It would take a long time for the demand to be satisfied.
3: be a hard time to find any bullets.
0: The letter gets a little punchy. It says, the service's unsubstantiated statement of possible risk to hunters due to the use of lead component ammunition to harvest game is very concerning. And it goes on to it goes on to attack this this uh thing that came out years ago i remember when it came out it was like x-rays of deer showing how many how much um how much lead fragmentation
1: from the wound channel but then
0: it goes on to say that they never substantiate that it's leg fragmentation their jack it's a jacketed ammo and all they're doing is showing that something showed up on an x-ray but no biopsy to show what, or no digging around to show what it was that was on the x-ray. And then the study was only done with one specific kind of ammunition. And then extrapolate. so they do a study with one specific lead ammunition and load it in a certain way out of a seven mil rem mag. And then they take what is there and then extrapolate out that all harvested <coughs> venison has blank. Right, even though there's this huge variation in how people harvest venison and all the ammunition's used, but the statistic came from a study in which only one type of ammunition was used.
3: Oh yeah, I mean sometimes, you know, I've shot. I have seven mag. Sometimes you, you know you shoot a certain bullet out of there and the thing blows up, you know, and it led everywhere. Other times, it's just yep, clean as a whistle.
0: If I punched Brody ten times and gave him seven black eyes,
3: I'd have a lot of lead
1: in my would
0: you be able to say all punches 70% of all punches result in a black eye? (laughs) (laughs) Uh. I'm not gonna talk about this for too long. But again, I just want to continue to make it clear, man. If you as an individual, like if you as an individual don't like the idea. Of the of that, you leave your gut pile out. You know, if if you're using certain if you're using lead ammunition and you leave your gut pile out, there is a chance that you will kill a raptor. Bear that in mind and behave accordingly. You might decide that you don't care, but I think that most people are thinking about it like that gut pile right there, like that gut pile that I'm walking away from right now has a chance of killing a raptor, like it actually killing a raptor. No one ever really, th- not a lot of people think no. of that. No, you know? have that in the back of your head <clears throat> and have that in the back of your head. If more people had that in the back of their head, this speaking of cause, you know causal relationships, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say hypothetically true. If more people had that in the back of their head, we might not be talking about ammunition bans right now. I don't know. Is that a wild statement? I don't think it's a wild
4: statement. Um, we'd certainly, because you know, there's a, a statement in this that that I it would fall on the the list of things that I don't really like the way it was written into this uh, letter. Um, there's a really specific study on uh, falcons okay. eating lead paint off of water towers where these falcons nested. Oh and in this letter it kind of says like who knows you know, where it all, came birds, from. all birds all yeah. birds land on water towers and build nests on water towers and eat lead off of water towers. Yeah. But if you talk to the bird people they're like it's not all birds. There's two super smart birds out there. Uh falcons and uh vultures that uh, have a lot of free time because they are very smart and very efficient at what they do.
0: Mm -hmm. uh,
4: And they mess around a lot and consequently get in a lot of trouble.
0: Got it. Um, Do you know we have a gray horned owl roosted under our office? I saw the picture there, which
4: is awesome. There's a a a couple of them.
0: them. Yeah. He lives in the, he lives in the
1: Eve supports. Must be why you don't ever see skunks or raccoons or anything wandering around. You know, it's
4: a a fun parallel here for uh, our guest is the fact that the uh, millinery trade was one of the things that absolutely decimated all types of birds, mostly pretty birds, all across the world. Uh, and uh, fly tying has its hands in that.
0: You got a lot of blood on your hands, buddy. <laughs> it's a long letter. Oh, Phil, hit us with the Fish and Lures song. Oh, yeah. You'll appreciate this, Son. Am I saying your name right? Yeah. Son? This is one of the best songs ever written. <laughs> It really is. Is it a Chester this guy, original? This guy is the Weird owl of fishing.
4: Got to find Karenzian mail here. Which oh, was a on, niche Phil? we had you feel you've had a,
0: you've had how many hours to get this thing squirted? I always kind of a little Jimmy Buffett vibe, maybe. Yeah.
6: This was
3: not what I was rip. expecting.
6: Rip. Yeah, rip. Rip
5: Buffett. I love fishing lures. <laughs> I love to cast them while I'm drinking a quart. Or while on the rocks I'm drinking the doors Clever little Mechanical Works of art <laughs> I love fishing lures Got a whole taboo box of them Wouldn't want any fewer I bet I'm a better Fisherman than you are When I'm at the spawning goods store I love loading
4: up My car this is this guy who's like, I can rhyme anything. Give me a line.
5: <laughs> oh wait, a Yeah, come on, part. Chester. Yep, harmonize. Chester's nice. gonna cover it. Some
0: <laughs> This guy's got a rhyming dictionary. It's like Eminem. I th- I feel like Eminem stole all of his shit from this guy. Oh, spin,
5: yeah. some of them rattle <laughs> all kind of exotic colors as your boat you paddle
0: the solo's amazing good
4: <laughs> yeah. do you imagine him doing that with one hand while he's recording here <clears throat> life, yeah I would be so, so
5: effective I think I could catch fish in the sewer lots of He's a real crooner. Oh yeah. dude.
4: I can see some success, like doing the old folks' homes, like in around like the like or yeah. something.
1: Yeah. He's from Bowling Falls, Michigan, the artist. Uh, oh, your buddy should get him to tour around with the bar. Yeah. Bring oh. <laughs> these two together for an added fee.
6: Like three-time collab, <laughs>
1: George Peter Block Jr.
0: of Boyne Falls, Michigan's the artist. Unbelievable artistry. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you think those flies are cool? That song, <laughs>
1: that's Grammy material. There, just unbelievable. I'm just gonna give this shit up now. I know, yeah yeah. You, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You're gonna
0: like you're gonna, like I went into the wrong business. I should have been
1: songwriter.
0: <laughs> All right, let's I, I, let's dive back in. Um. Walk me through getting from well let me let me let me do a quick recap. Uh just because people might be so blown away by that song.
3: Yeah, it's hard to focus.
0: Your father fought your father fought
2: um for the NR no, how's it go? N R the South Vietnamese Army. Yeah, N R V N was it N R
0: V N was it no no no.
2: No, the N V A was the the opposite opposition. A R V N? I guess. Right. Oh, I know it's the South Vietnamese Army. Got
0: it. South Vietnamese army. Yeah. You were born the year before the US pulled out of Vietnam. Yes. Um US pulls out of Vietnam. Your family was from the south of Vietnam. The communists came from the north. Your father saw the writing on the wall that he would wind up in a re education camp or wind up executed. Yep. You guys flee. Um have a treacherous uh, journey to Malaysia. Correct. Correct. Apply for asylum all over the world and get asylum in the U S. Correct. But here's one part I' a little curious about. Uh, did you, did your father, like, did your father have colleagues, friends, whatever that he met from the U S military, or was he not working hand in hand with the U S military during the war?
2: Uh, he did, um, prior to the actual official U.S. involvement. Um, I don't know, like, all the details of it, but I know, like, in the 50s, he had worked with some of the initial advisors that came over to, um, the Vietnam, and then, um, from my recollections, I believe it was some of them that helped get us. Got it. Okay.
0: So that's what I wanted to jump to, is how you, um, at this point, you're in Malaysia,
2: and you're how old? Uh, Got there. I was about four and a half. Okay. Fly tying not on your mind. <laughs> oh, all I was staring at was sardines.
0: <laughs> <laughs> sardines on your mind. Yeah. And then you come to the U.S. and what happens? Like, like how do how, you get accepted? You get your asylum gets accepted, and all of a sudden, what? A plane shows up. How does that work? You're, uh, you're in a you're in a refugee camp in Malaysia. Like, how does it? You get a letter saying you've been.
2: Given asylum in the U.S., well then, then what? Uh, like I said, it was I don't know like all the details, but that Mennonite family from Lancaster, Pennsylvania, helped us with the paperwork, and then eventually got us on the plane where we end up uh, landing in uh, California, and then uh, was there for a couple years while I guess with getting our green cards and all that mm-hmm. other stuff. And then how he, many family members? Uh, five total. My brother was born in the refugee camp. So I got a younger brother, a younger sister, and then mom and dad. Okay, and then uh, eventually that that uh, Mennonite community got us over to uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, and helped my parents uh, find work and whatnot out there.
0: And how? What in the world did you get? Like, how did you ever even get introduced to fishing?
2: Well, uh, when I was a when I was a young kid, uh, basically being an immigrant, we didn't, I didn't have all the luxuries of most other of kids, where parents spoiled them with toys or whatnot. So you guys were, were poor. Uh, we were poor as shit. And so we were playing, like, with sticks or hand-me-downs and whatnot, and then uh, my first fishing rod was, like, some old Shakespeare spinning rod that my neighbor couldn't sell from a garage sale, and he gave it to me.
0: You know you're into the real bottom-end tackle when <laughs> it's the shit that doesn't sell at a <laughs> yeah. garage sale. Hey. Like, when you go to a garage sale and you look at the rod and choose not to buy that rod, that's a rough rod.
2: <laughs> Yeah, from <laughs> what I recall, we had like 30-pound test line on it. I didn't know the difference between 4-pound test line and 80-pound test line back then. All I knew was that I could use it to catch fish. And, and I the had, guy
0: the guy gives it to you?
2: Yeah, he gave it to me. And then uh, where I grew up there, there was a small uh, creek that runs through the, the area. Uh-huh. It was only, uh, gosh, maybe half a mile from my house. Okay, It runs through a little community park there in uh, Conestoga River. And in there, yeah, everything from carp to all sorts of panfish and uh, smallmouth bass and the whole nine yards. And so that's where I pretty much spent most of my, my childhood it was just basically fishing there on that, that creek. Were you self-taught? Yeah. yeah. Um, were there other
0: Vietnamese dudes running around or was it just your family? I think we were the only minorities in the whole town. Really? Did you guys feel some pressure on that or were people pretty accepting?
2: People were very accepting. Yeah. I mean, uh, they, they probably knew the history too, right? Yeah, like Pennsylvania gets a bad rep because of like the, the left and the right, because of <laughs> Philadelphia and, and Pittsburgh, but yeah. everywhere in between is very, very conservative. And that's how that, that community was a very conservative community. And then the kids, they pretty much everybody just took them in. So uh, there were a couple kids there that went to the same school, most of them were on the older side. And then a lot of them helped me out too by basically uh, just showing me some of the ropes. Do you, um, this has nothing to do with tying flies or fishing, but do you feel,
0: when you were growing up and, 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 and you were young and Vietnam was still fresh for people, what, did you encounter like a feeling, did you encounter among Americans a, like, like a guilt for withdrawing from Vietnam like when people met your dad okay people meet your dad and your dad served in the South Vietnamese army was was there sort of a, an implied like oh man I'm sorry
2: no Th- that uh, wasn't a thing no not maybe if I had grown up somewhere else but like I said the area I grew up in was very conservative people kept their opinions to themselves they pretty much left you alone unless you know they you got involved in their business uh-huh. so if people had opinions they kept it themselves so i didn't really didn't experience any of that if, if my parents did they shielded us from it Yep. so growing up uh, growing up going through school i mean I, I really never saw any of that
0: got it but you were the only vietnamese kid around yeah yeah and were you raised around people who weren't mennonite too
2: oh yeah okay. like this uh they're actually the, the very small minority there there's uh Mennonites there's there's Amish, and then there's obviously all the other Christian non-denominations and whatnot. so um the school I went to, I mean, I think there was maybe ten, twelve minorities all altogether with a class of about a thousand. so it was predominantly Caucasian um area, and um I really didn't have any friends growing up. there were other minorities. It was all the kids that I ran around with were all the Caucasian kids and they these were kids that grew up hunting and fishing, yeah. Probably one of the reasons why I listen to country music. Also, <laughs> <I'm> very confused.
0: <laughs> did your uh, did your folks have any sense of um, Did your folks have any sense of, of fishing as a as a sort of
2: recreational pastime? No, they didn't care as long as I was bringing fish home.
0: <laughs> oh, so they they liked the fish.
2: Yeah, like my culture, they we don't waste anything. I catch a fish, they ate it. So I didn't know the difference between what was a good eating fish and what was a horrible mud fish. If I caught it, I brought it home. I mean, like a lot of fishermen out there, it's like they catch, they keep everything they catch. Um, the conservation, none of that shit was really in the back of my mind as a kid. I mean, I brought carp home and then my, it was finally, my mom was like, don't bring this shit home anymore because <laughs> it's. T- she got picky. <laughs> she got picky because it's so hard to clean because there's so many bones in it. Yep. All I saw was just a big fat fish. It'd feed everybody. So let's say you brought a carp home. What, what, how would she prepared it? Uh, And when you
0: were a kid, what were you eating?
2: I think it was basically drowned in a lot of fish sauce and other seasonings to actually get rid of some of the mud taste out of it, from my recollection. I only recall eating it a handful of times, and then she complained about it, and I never kept the carp again. So what if you brought a a bluegill back or a smallmouth bass back? Um, The way we prepare it is a little bit different, where um, generally, American culture, they'll fillet the fish, you just eat the fillets. And then with um, a lot of the Asian cultures, they'll gotta take the gills out and whatnot, cut the fins off. And then they'll either broil or deep fry the entire fish yeah. after the scales are obviously removed. And then like probably one of the tastiest part is is the crispy skin.
0: Yeah. Uh, you were getting introduced to American style food though?
2: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, at home, almost everything was still Vietnamese food. Mm. But we were getting the slow introductions because like I, as a poor kid, I got food, st- uh, the, the meal tickets. Yep. So all my lunches were basically cafeteria food, and that's vast majority of the introduction I had to American food, where I thought that slop was like great. <laughs> yeah, you're like Salisbury steak, <laughs> <Yeah>. turkey gravy.
6: <laughs> what What'd your mom do with the or mom and or dad do with like the squirrels and deer and other stuff? Because he was hunting a lot.
2: You were hunting well. small game too. Yeah, I mean, uh, it was very very different being 49 years old when I grew up, where I was riding my little bike with a shotgun on my shoulder five miles to the next town. To go hunt and nobody would think any different. And uh I mean, there were times where I rode my bike by the sheriff. Like we had one sheriff in the town and waved to him. Good luck. <laughs> were, were you uh, <laughs> Were you self taught on the hunting thing too? Or do you have buddies you ran around with or I started basically uh just squirrels were the first thing that we shot. Yep. And I didn't have a, a weapon at that point, like a rifle or a shotgun. So neighbors let me one. <laughs> yep, That's how it went back then. Yeah, and <laughs> it didn't teach me how to use it. So I kind of figured out how to use it on my own. I mean, I took it out to the back of a farm. They had given me some 22 uh, rounds and figured out how to use a rifle. Common sense was a big thing, too. Like, you know, this thing's going to fire a bullet. Might want to aim it in a place where I'm not going to kill myself. So I figured out how to, how to use it. And then as time went by and some of the other caliber weapons and whatnot, then I, I was taught by... Either the friends or their dads and whatnot. But my first my first uh, rifle I shot was uh the uh, the twenty two and that was self taught. And then the same day with a the shotgun, they handed me a shotgun, it was twenty gauge shotgun. I don't remember what brand, and just put the round in here and pulled this trigger. Did your siblings get into it? No. They're like 180 of me. I mean if you picture So you were
0: just like you were you were just obsessed from as a kid, but it wasn't universal in the family.
2: Yeah, if you met me and my siblings, you would think I was adopted.
0: <laughs> because of what they're into
2: yeah they're total opposites i mean they're your your typical nine to five professional cpas and finance and even when um i i mean i started off down that route when i finished college and then went and worked at, for rca owned by thompson multimedia when i was an engineer and uh but in the back of my mind i was always just looking forward to getting off work, so I could go fishing or go hunting. It was a means to doing what I wanted to do, where both my brother and sister, you know, that's that's their career and that's what they enjoy. To me, working has always been been a means and until until I joined the military, that was.
0: Yeah. What uh you went to college first?
2: Yeah, I went to college first. And then uh those years were they're kind of boring it was more or less just focuses on study and then Where'd uh, you go to school? Lehigh. And then uh from there we uh I went to work and then it provided an astronomical amount of money for a kid that my age that had nothing before. So did
0: you have a lot of pressure from your folks to go to school?
2: Oh God. Yeah. Like if we didn't get
0: like they the, were into the whole American dream thing and all that. Yeah.
2: yeah. I mean, the stereotype for most Asian families, if you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, you're not my kid. <laughs> it's very, very true. <laughs> so, uh, there's always been a lot of pressure. They always guilt us with the, uh, the fact that, you know, we gave up everything to give a, you guys a better life and they would guilt trip the shit out of us. Oh, yeah. That's yeah. That's Master that's fly duty, tire man. doesn't
3: fall into that category. <laughs> uh,
2: no, but it does play a big part into turning me into who I am today because of the upbringing I had and the the rules and the strictness that my parents had and whatnot. G- give um, me an
0: example of the, the of a rule, the strictness.
2: Um uh, basically, eat everything you have on your plate. So I was raised never to waste food, down so,
6: to the last. Because you guys
2: grain. knew starvation, man. And so even to this day, even I do not like what is before what what's in front of me. I will force myself to finish it. And sometimes it gets pretty difficult, like during my travels going on through, uh, Europe or some of these, try some of these local cuisines that I was just like, I would still force myself to eat it. And then, um, uh, so that's basically appreciate what you have mm-hmm. is another one because you never know when it's going to be all taken away. So basically I try not to take anything for granted. Just yeah. Like always just live in that moment per se. Uh, my first time coming here to Montana several years ago. I always uh like envisioned what Montana was like. And it was that way because my first experience with Montana wasn't Bozeman. It was going uh up the Twin Bridges and then floating the Smith River and then that the beauty that Lewis and Clark National Forest had. Yeah. Being surrounded by nature and the river, and the, you're just with that small group of people, and not massive crowds. So what I had pictured Montana was gonna be like was what I experienced. Now, years later I realized Montana isn't always like that, going to Yellowstone or the Madison River, and then you got people everywhere. And it's one of the most popular tourist destinations. Yep. But it, it never changed the fact that I know what Montana has to offer, and then each time I come here, I, I try not to take it for granted. I just appreciate each day here. And again, that comes from the upbringing that I had from my parents.
0: So how did, how what was the, your decision like to get in the military?
2: Well, uh, 9-11 happened. Um, I was working... I think I had just gotten back from Paris. The Like I said, the company's owned by Thompson. Um, so I would spend several months out of the year traveling to France, to Poland, to Mexico, where they had their their factories. So anytime that we completed something with R&D, we would go out there, implement that technology into the factories and the assembly lines and troubleshoot. Um, and You then, were an engineer. Yeah. we're yeah. The applications engineering department, where we basically would took the pretty much the, the final products so of everything that the physics labs and everybody else put together. And then we made the final product what it is. Um, so nine 11 happened. Uh, it was like a lot of people, you know, waking up, turning on the news. And I was like, what the hell? Mm-hmm. And, uh, I literally didn't, I mean, I don't think anybody went to work that day and I was just sat there glued to the TV. So like most other people, uh, I felt bad. I wanted to do something. I went and gave blood. I mean, there was a line out the door to, to give blood. So I gave blood and I felt that still wasn't enough. And then I was thinking about uh, things I could possibly do to, to help, like, basically America. And then I got that phone call from also my dad. And he's like, hey, you, you really need to do something, join the military or something to pay back our, you know, our family's debt to the U.S. Because. Where was he calling from? Uh, well, at that point, my parents were divorced because Mm -hmm. all the years that they spent working all these long hours, their relationship kind of like, just like, uh, disappeared. And at that point, you know, the kids are all grown up, so Mm -hmm. they were divorced. Um, but I don't know exactly where he was calling from, but he just told me that I had to do something because I was the oldest and. Oh, really? Yeah. I'm the oldest and (laughs) I don't know if I should say this, but my brother's too weak and my sister's a girl. So... (laughs) It was really up to me, and then yep. uh, I had already thought about it a little bit, but that kind of like pushed me over the edge. And then uh, literally the the very next week, I was down at the army recruiting station and uh, submitted my two week uh, notice to the company. Everybody thought that I was nuts because it was one of those companies that you got there and people left when they died because it was a really good company to work for. They gave you like thirty days vacation a year and another thirty days of sick days, so literally you have sixty days a year where you didn't have to show up to work and you still got paid. Uh, it was hourly very, very good wages where like the average median income in Pennsylvania back then or Lancaster, then, was about 24,000. And I was making way more than that. So, um, I was able to go do all these great things that I, I absolutely love and not ever have to worry about the cause like musky fishing. I mean, I wasn't fly fishing back then, but going up to Canada or going to the coas to shoot wild game and hunting wherever I wanted. Cause I really didn't have any school loans or anything. And, uh, it was a tough decision because I knew I had to give all that up. I, I, another part was the fishing, and I fished a lot in the Chesapeake. Literally, like when it was a hunt season, after work, I would drive an hour and a half down to the Chesapeake Bay and go after uh, striped bass. They call them rockfish out there at the East Coast, or go flounder or go and crabbing with some of my friends. And I knew all that was going to go away because uh, I mean, I was an idiot. I looked up the salary difference, and <laughs> I knew that going from over 60,000 a year down to basically making like $1,200 a month was going to be a drastic <laughs> change in lifestyle. But it was, the plan was only going to be three years. And so... And, then and you
0: went, but you went in as a trained engineer, but you didn't go and become a, you nah. didn't be like, I want to be in the Corps.
2: No, uh, I, the way I looked at it was, uh, well, the Corps was a different story. So they were actually I mean, the Army, first...
0: I mean, the Army Corps of Engineers, sorry.
2: But the Marine Corps was the oh, first okay. ones okay. to actually call. yeah. But the recruiter was a, was a lazy son of a bitch. And he wanted me to run the background check, get my fingerprints. He was actually having me do all this stuff. And I was, I thought that was what you're supposed to do. So I was actually coming back to the Marine Corps recruiting station with all these documents and whatnot. And then I found out I was missing something and I had to go again. And then the Army guy was out there puffing out a cigarette. And he's like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> and then he told me, I'll take care of all that for you. Like, oh, what do you guys have to offer? And they're like, well, there's college loan repayment and all this other stuff. And so I went in there and talked to him for a little bit. And he sold, sold it to me. This guy was willing to cater everything and take care of all the paperwork. And I literally just had to show up. I was like, this is totally different than the Marines. This, these guys really wanted me. So I was like, I knew the Marines had the, the grunts. The Army's also had the grunts. So I was like, all right, I'll go Army. Because everybody that pictures, you know, the fighting force, they always think Marine Corps first. And that was that was the same way. And then he told me all the different things that the Army had to offer. And I ended up signing with the military. Now, everybody blames their recruiter for their miserable life in the military. <laughs> <laughs> they Could do? The recruiter lied to me. Yeah. But the, uh, the difference was, my recruiter actually was a really good guy. and He was actually trying to talk me out of going into the infantry because I had maxed out my ASVAB. My my scores were off the charts, and I could have done anything. They were offering me all these military intelligence, uh, MOSs, uh, the job, uh, along with civil affairs, all the stuff that requires high test scores. And I was like, no. If I'm going to give up three years of my life to make a difference, put me where the fight's at, put a rifle in my head. And I chose to, to join the infantry. With the mindset, it was only going to be just three years. And uh, because if I was going to join, I wanted to deploy. And the, the MOS that was the highest rate deployed was 11 Bravo as an infantryman. And that's what I selected. Hmm. Hindsight's twenty <laughs> <laughs> twenty. You got what you asked for? <laughs> I got what I asked for and for. But uh, to all the young kids out there that might be thinking about the military, really consider your life choices. Infantry is very rewarding. You're going to have a brotherhood of people in, in the combat of arms that you will never experience anywhere else. Do a lot of cool shit. And you're going to do a lot of stuff that's really going to test your psych and your, your body. However, there's going to be sacrifices that you're going to give up. And... That number one sacrifice is going to be your body and your brain. If you're willing to give up that sacrifice, it is the best. the
0: body. You got to give up the body and the brain. It's, you're going to give up both. <laughs> Those are two big parts.
2: What, I mean, what, what's left? Because I got after 22 <laughs> yeah. years of service, I've already had 11 surgeries to fix all sorts of different ailments. But I mean, I have. I might look very young for a 49 year old, but I probably have a body of a 60 year old. And then uh, your brain will also start start failing you too, because you're going to go through some. Some really troubling times when you're gonna you're gonna have to have some mental fortitude or intestinal fortitude along with a mental strength to overcome a lot of the shit that you'll deal with in the infantry. But it's a very rewarding MOS.
0: Slash meat eater, The single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scatter gun is the Onyx Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using OnX. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using OnX. I'm always using OnX. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's I'm in the navel, and I hear, pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X and I'll look at the topography and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them. Okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. On X Hunt has a special offer for you too. Use code ME EATER to receive 20% off your membership at onxmaps.com/slash hunt this turkey season. Now a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition. And make sure to use code MeatEater for ten percent off your purchase. That's HeartAndSoil.co. Use the code MeatEater. At uh, I want to keep on the chronology, but let me ask you this: At this point, nine eleven, you going into the infantry? Are Are you just uh, eating and sleeping, fly tying? I wasn't even touching that yet. <laughs> <laughs> I literally. But what's your awareness of it at this point? Right? Nothing. Okay. I mean. But well, well, you know there is such a thing as a fly rod.
2: For like 10 years, my first 10 years, I was, I was gone a lot. So when I got back, uh, I spent more or less- Where more.
0: all did you get sent to?
2: Iraq, Afghanistan, oh. Southern Philippines, uh, Kuwait, so Middle East. Yeah. Um, when I got back, my, my first duty station was Korea. I was really upset because they weren't deploying. All they do is- But was, that's
0: really common though, right? Yeah, it's yeah, really yeah.
2: common. A lot of first assignments are to places that you actually don't deploy out of. And then your next one. Now, the fortunate thing for me and my mindset back then was it was only a year, and then I was able to pick whatever assignment I want. So uh, I knew that Hawaii was getting ready to go because did I'll you get to... bumped up in rank because of your education? Yeah, I came in as a specialist. Like okay, E four on at an E one to E nine
0: scale. Um, I got another totally off the off subject, not off subject, but out of chronology. Um, when you were in, so when you're stationed in Korea and you had time off. Would we drank. It, no, would it, but, but <laughs> can you, with your background and your family, wouldn't it be inadvisable for you to go to Vietnam?
2: Actually, uh, that that's a really sour subject because my grandfather was dying and I was out in the field training. And my family and my mom called the, the unit to give them a red cross message to let them know that my, my grandfather was dying. And a flight from, Korea to Vietnam is really short and it, very inexpensive. And it was, I could have literally gone just like that on a on a whim and they never notified me. So my grandfather passed away. I was within like a sh- really short hop of getting there to be by his bedside and they never told me. Mm-hmm. So yes, I could have gone to Vietnam to answer your question, but that happened while I was over there in Korea.
0: Yeah. And then, and your family would not have been pissed about it. No. Yeah.
2: No, my family pretty much has allowed me to make my own life choices and do whatever I want is just live with the repercussions of my choices. And that's how they pretty much have treated. I mean, yeah, there was always those pressures of doing well and whatnot. But at the end of the day, all my parents wanted to be was just happy.
0: Yeah. So you spent time in in when you spent time in Iraq, Afghanistan. These are long stints of time or short in and outs or they were
2: all varied. Uh, The longest I was there for was uh, 15 months. Straight? Yeah. 15 months straight. Oh, wow. And then the shortest I was gone for was uh, six months, and then you had nine, 12, 14s, all mixed in there.
0: And you were there in
2: what role? Uh, combat operations for the most part.
0: Yeah. As a as an
2: officer? As a non-commissioned officer? As a non-commissioned officer. Okay. Because yep. by the time I, I went on my first deployment with uh, my second duty assignment there, which was Hawaii, I was already uh, a sergeant in E-5 then. So... That's the difference with the the military versus the civilian side. You could be like a 20-year-old, you rank a sergeant or a corporal, and you're already gonna have three to four people that you control their lives. And then with- with Uh, How many people? Uh, Usually as a fire team leader, you would have three to four people uh, that fall underneath you and you're Mm. their immediate supervisor. And eventually when you make squad leader, um, in a typical infantry unit, you have anywhere from nine to 11, if it depends on whether it's, it's a light infantry or a striker infantry. And then um, as a platoon sergeant, once you get up, which is generally about 12 to 14 years in, then uh, you would have 36 to 44. And then as an infantry company first sergeant, you would have anywhere from 136 to over 200. And then that was my role for the last five years was uh, as a first sergeant. Uh, And you're retiring now? Next year. Yep. 20 years. 22 years. 22 years. Army's changed quite a bit. Um, There's a lot of things that I absolutely love, and I wouldn't, looking back on it, I wouldn't change anything I'd done. Um, But at the same time, the way it's headed right now with me coming up through basically the entire duration of my time in through all these wars and conflict and having certain expectations of how people should be and how soldiers should be has changed quite a bit now that we're considered like a peacetime military. Got it. And that's not what I signed up for. And now that I've I've done my time, it's time for me to move on.
0: You just don't, me you don't want to, you don't feel the need to be there during peacetime.
2: Yeah. The drive isn't the same anymore, along with, you know, other factors like my body is starting to give out. And I've always been one of those that you can't tell people to do something. You can't do it themselves. You do it yourself. Got it. And I'm now at the point where I cannot be as physically fit as I used to be, where I always pride myself that my fitness was higher than most. Got I got it. Can run out with the best of them with 17 18 year olds and can't really do that anymore with like basically all the injuries that i've had so
0: you, when you talk about surgeries you had you had you had injuries within the military yeah i got you i yeah. got you
2: and then within the from doing certain things and then also just the wear and tear Yeah. where we would do certain certain things as an infantryman where you have to be able to carry a 35 pound ruck a pack on your back, along with your weapon, your pro mass. I mean, all in all, you end up carrying probably close to 65 pounds worth of gear. And you have to do that foot march 12 miles in under three hours, which you either can walk really fast or you have to jog some of it. Short legs, like me, I had to run a lot of it because there's no way in hell I maintain a 15-minute pace with all that gear on with my short legs, so I had to jog and run. And you would do that every year, along with all the other conditioning foot marches where it might be six miles, might be nine miles. And then when you go to the field... We do all these different infantry battle drills for training aspects of it. Some of them are like, for example, movement to contact or movement to daylight. Movement daylight is exactly what it sounds like. You start off walking at night and you keep walking until daylight. And if you don't find the enemy, then you basically you halt. Or if you do movement to contact, you keep walking until you find the damn enemy. And then you take the fight to them. Or you're doing a reconnaissance. I mean, there's a lot of different aspects of it. And then there's no such thing as we can't walk there because of the terrain. You make do like in in korea that would really test you that would break your freaking body because of of the elevation and then the uh, mountains that you're walking up and down so you find all the different draws the different cuts and you make your path and you would sometimes walk 14 18 30 hours we had one combat operation after we had a soldier killed that we were hunting for specific people where it was a 96 hour operation we're up four days straight and fatigue and everything starts kicking in. And that's where the fitness has to to come in because if you're not fit, you're tired, you're going to fall asleep and somebody's going to die. Mm -hmm. So those are the things that start stressing your body and really start stressing your brain. Uh, You know, one incident like, or one event like that is, is not so bad, but you multiply that over the course of numerous combat deployments, 20 plus years of service. And it has its toll.
0: When, after Afghanistan had gone on for 20 years and people started to draw parallels between Afghanistan and Vietnam, and then we pull out of Afghanistan in a way that seemed reminiscent at a minimum, right, of our withdrawal from Vietnam, uh, what did that look like after having spent time there? What was that like emotionally for you?
2: It was... It was disheartening and yeah. I'm going to leave it at that because yeah. I'm still an active duty member Oh yeah. and I might actually say something. I might. Regret. We'll talk to you. We'll talk to you in a year. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me <laughs> in a year. and I'll tell you a very <laughs> passionate feelings about that, but it was very disheartening Yeah, because there were, there were, there were good men and women that, that lost their lives on how it was handled. Yeah. I got it.
0: Um, still not tying flies. Uh, Did you start tying flies in the. Seven years ago is when I started. Okay, so what happened seven years ago?
2: So uh, I, I was getting ready to leave Hawaii. I was still recovering from some of the injuries that uh, I was getting uh, medical help for. And at that point right there, I was really not doing platoon sergeant work anymore, where I was just getting ready to PCS, permanent change of station, and leave Hawaii. Packed up all the stuff, they shipped it off. We're living out of the hotel room until our flight. So I had a couple weeks left. and. I was hitting the drink pretty hard. In Hawaii. In in Hawaii. Because the one thing, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but one of the things that like uh, with non-commissioned officers or leaders in general in the military is when you have soldiers that you're responsible for, you will put on a facade in order to present that appearance to those soldiers. So you put it up a wall and you always have to show because they're going to mimic everything you do. So even if I wanted to be pissed or piss ass drunk every day, I really couldn't because I had soldiers that I was responsible for But the minute that you take those leaders and you have them no longer in charge of anything, then that wall comes crumbling down real fast. And that was happening to me where all the things I kept bottled up inside for years and years, you know, soldiers that were lost over in combat, people that I knew that were very close to no longer around injuries that I, I, I felt, and then just a sheer amount of horror that you see over the Middle East where, you know, they'll strap, uh, like the one of the soldiers that we had pass away, uh, died from a suicide vest, and it was like basically a little many mental, handicapped uh, child, girl that they strapped the vest to. So she walked in there, you know, selling cigarettes and whatnot to all the soldiers to get accustomed to seeing uh, seeing these local national kids, and they strapped the vester and they blew her up. Soldiers wearing uh, forty mic bike rounds on his vest because he was a grenadier. Those rounds exploded and it basically just tore his inside out. So those are the things that you'll deal with that uh, you basically just have to pack away. There's some mm-hmm. people that can't, and then they're the ones that will have like those mental breakdowns and they'll uh, they're the vocal about PTSD, et cetera, et cetera. Well, I couldn't have that luxury because I had, you know, I had soldiers that I was responsible for. I had thirty six other men that if I broke down, then what what were they going to do? So I bottle a lot of that crap up. So the minute that I no longer was in charge of anything, I had all this free time in my hands as I get, was getting ready to leave Hawaii, You know, I was uh, drinking pretty heavily, just mm-hmm. trying to drown out some of that shit. And uh, one, the, the time where I first started getting into the fly fishing aspect of it, uh, I was at a bar and there was a, an old guy that kept on trying to talk to me and I was kind of like brushing him off. And then he brought up the subject of fishing. So keep in mind, I absolutely loved fishing as a kid, but I didn't really dangle in it at all because I was so busy with the military for so long that it kind of like took a backseat to everything I was doing in the military. But that sparked, you know, my interest right away. It was brought back, you know, some of those fun memories and that's how he got me to open up. And he took me out to Kanehoi Bay and I don't even know what size fly rod or whatnot. It was just some huge rod and it showed me how to do some basic casts and, uh, uh, handed me this. Who, who was this guy? Was I he just, military? Uh, Korean War vet. Oh, okay. Yeah, he was just another vet. Uh, caught my first fish. And it was the most exhilarating feeling. It was totally different than anything I had caught, I had done with uh, co- conventional gear because that rod was so long and you feel like every head shake, every movement, the runs, the whole nine yards. I had no idea that it was a trophy-sized bonefish as my first fish that I caught. I just, in Hawaii. In Hawaii. Yeah,
0: yeah, that's it was a huge two, bonefish, man. A twelve-pound
2: <laughs> bonefish. That was my first fish on a fly rod. <laughs> to me, it was just a fish. But you caught it on a flat in Hawaii. Yeah. Huh. And so, uh, unfortunately, um, soon after that, we uh, we left Hawaii and uh, moved to my next assignment, and again got all caught up in uh, in the military and didn't fly fish again for for almost like 6 7 months. And um, but were you like did no, th- not at all. You weren't thinking about
1: fishing Oh, no, you know
2: how my mindset is when I get a fo- uh, focus on a very sp- on specific task, I get like obsessed with making sure it gets done right. And the task that I had on hand was that we were certifying National Guard guardsmen before they deployed overseas. And we wanted to make sure that they knew what the hell they were doing, uh, otherwise, you know, they could suffer casualties. So that was my main focus. Mm-hmm. I was traveling to places like Grayling, Michigan, to Fort Drum, New York, all over the place. And we would get these battalions and brigades of National Guardsmen, in, and we ran them through the, the gauntlet. And so that's what I was doing for, for a long time. And then uh, the time that I got re, uh, rekindled with the fishing aspect of it was, I was actually driving home. I lived uh, about 68 miles or so from work. One way, uh, because a big part of my life is my, my, uh, kids and I wanted to find the best schools I could put them in. So th- the area around posts generally, most military bows, <laughs> not exactly the greatest where you got a lot of sh- strip bars, pawn shops and. This, oh, I gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So it was, the the best schools was up in, uh, about 60 miles away in Northeast Indianapolis in a town called Fishers. And, uh, I made that commute every day. So long drive home, Listen to a lot of radios, a lot of audible, uh, whatnot. And this one time I had the radio on and uh, there was a commercial for the uh, Indianapolis Sports and Outdoor Show. And I was like, oh, maybe, maybe I'll check this out. It's only 15 minute diversion from getting home. So I was still in uniform, drove there, I went, started oh, I just went out. there right then. Just went there right then. And it's walking around, checking out all the boats and um, the hunting lodges, and I mean, the radio
0: ads work, man.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so,
0: uh, when I got over to the the fishing you should have area, gone and visited the guy that did the ad by, the guy want you to know, oh, man. I literally <laughs> came here because of that radio ad. When you said exit now.
2: Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it was very similar to the guy that does those four-wheeling ads where they, you know, they're yelling and screaming, come check this out right now.
5: You You're got like, you know, I will. Damn, you got it. Damn it, I will.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I went and then I, when I made it over to the, the fishing area, they had a very little small corner there just for the fly fishing. You uh-huh. know, I was checking out the whole show. And eventually I made it over to the fly fishing area. And then I got, I was, I was hearing, hey, soldier, come here. Like, Who the hell's calling me? Yeah. Realized I was still in uniform, <laughs> so there's was this um, organization called Project Healing Waters fly fishing, and um, they had a chapter there out of Indianapolis, and they had a little booth there. They're trying to oh shit me because you had your uniform on. That's how I had a big target on my back. like yeah, there's a soldier. <laughs> yeah, really? So went over there, and they start telling me them about themselves and what they do, and how they help veterans uh, overcome uh, uh, disabilities, whether it's mental or physical. You're yeah. like, I happen to know a guy. <laughs> and how they heal through uh, fly fishing and whatnot. And I was like, oh, fly fishing is pretty cool. I did that once. And they're like, oh, we'll, we'll show you how everything else you need to know. So sign up uh, with their email list. And next thing you know, I got this notification. God, it's you. like
0: divine intervention, dude.
2: <laughs> and uh, it's like
0: God was like talking to you through your car radio.
2: Yeah. <laughs> and uh, it's wild. I almost left, though, on my first uh, outing that they had. So uh, being. Being a, uh, a soldier, you kind of feel like you're almost an outsider to civilians at times because, uh-huh. uh, you change over the years. And one of the things that changed about me was I didn't like being around strangers. I didn't like being around crowds. I didn't like being around an environment I couldn't control. Yeah. So it's that fight or flight mentality. And I was getting that, like that first day I was that at that outing, even though there were other vets there, I didn't know who was a vet, who was a volunteer, who was what. it was just completely, I'm, I'm the only one there that didn't know anybody. So, you know, oh,
0: man, I don't know if that's particular to that because I, that might be your age shining through too. Because I got that problem bad. <laughs> and I haven't done <laughs> shit.
2: <laughs> Could be that too. And then you compound that with the military and then you exemplified it even more. Yeah. So I was actually getting ready to leave and I was walking back to my car and I was about to drive off. And then there's, there's this older gentleman in my name.
0: Oh, I'm sorry. You're getting ready to leave?
2: That first fishing
0: outing. So they host you on a fishing outing, there and were, you get there, and it was too much.
2: It was too much going on. I and I, and I so looked, you almost
0: said, like, never mind. I'm, this isn't for me.
2: I, yeah, I literally walked to my car, was hopping in, and then this this unannounced. You're just leaving. I was just leaving. I was just bail. Irish goodbye. <laughs> and uh, this gentleman, like right, in a way that was weird. No, to me it was normal. It was like, but I mean, like in a way, they would be like, "Wow, that guy just left." Yeah, okay. I'm sure they 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 deal with that quite a bit. Yeah, okay, because they deal with a lot of soldiers that or, and veterans that are going through quite a bit. But the um, this guy named Joe Smith, he's uh, find out you know he's the program coordinator there. He's like, hey, hey, wait, what's where are you going? And then he kind of like talked me out of it and uh, partnered me up with somebody because I didn't realize that once you go there and then you sign up and then they they put a volunteer with you to be like your buddy for the day, good okay. type of deal. And, Another veteran. Uh, sometimes sometimes it's just a civilian that just okay. wants to help out.
3: Yep. I used to do that, and I was I just teach people how to cast and take them out on the river and the drift boat and stuff.
2: And I had no idea. For that same
3: organization? No. Warriors on Quiet Water. Got it.
2: And so um, they partnered me up with somebody and then um, took me out to the area where there was a a bunch of crappies and with a fly rod and they showed me some basic gas and whatnot. Started catching some fish. And then kind of like slowly forgot about everything else, all the anxiety that I was dealing with Mm -hmm. and all that melted away again. And when they, you you hear that cliche quite a bit where, you know, healing through uh, fishing, healing being on the water. It's very true because the reason why fly fishing works so well compared to conventional fishing or archery versus conventional hunting is the amount of concentration and attention to details that's required in order to achieve your end state. If you don't pay attention to what you're doing, you're going to get hung up with a fly rod. You don't pay attention with what you're doing with a bow. You're not gonna hit your target. Yeah,
0: and so all. Meaning, if you got a if you got a sucker rod out with a bell on the end, <laughs> yeah, you, there could you still be, you could still be pounding some drinks and thinking about the yes. war. Let
2: the circle hook do <laughs> the job. And- <laughs> but you're constantly so busy with a fly rod that you kind of like start yeah, tuning everything else out. And that's why that it, it really helps with with the mental healing aspect of it because you tune out all that noise. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, that's what tying is, is also.
0: So, uh, when you were, when you guys were fishing crappies, what were you, uh, do you remember what you were throwing?
2: I think it was a little pheasant tail. Okay. It was whatever he tied on there. But did you
0: take any particular interest in it at that time?
2: The fly? Uh, sort of because of the engineering background, I was more intrigued on the how ism to everything. Okay. so I uh, even to this day like the first time I looked at a fly I was deconstructed in my brain like how is this thing put together got it I mean, so I you just looked
0: at the world that way
2: I look at the world I look at a camera system and I think it the same way and like how, how is this lens put together how's the glass how's the magnification etc yeah. everything I look at I, I deconstruct you've been eyeballing that old triumph trap right there <laughs> <laughs> I mean if you think about it it's probably why the Japanese and the, and the Chinese are so far advanced in technology because they, they steal all American ideas deconstruct everything yeah. to their engineers but yeah so i look at stuff and um i started deconstructing it was the same way with flies it was the same way with a cast it was the same way with how the fly rods built the physics behind it uh-huh. so coming from the, the engineering background i looked at it a little bit differently where i like in the the casting and um using the line and the rod on basically catching that fish versus the uh the reel is like the engineering behind it on applied pressure and whatnot and using basically motion or the cast. And I mean, at the end of the day, some of the, the best casters in the world, the fly rack can cast further than anybody with a bait cast or a spinning rod because they They know, they understand physics. So when I was looking at those flies, I was already starting to think that now I really didn't know exactly, you know, how you would do it. All I knew was the material type of materials, but I didn't know all of the materials. And so that even piqued my interest more because then on another trip home, I was like, uh, I was like, you know, those flies. I kept on thinking about it. It was oh. like stuck in my brain. And I Googled. Like the fly as
0: a thing. Yeah.
2: yeah. And I Googled fly shops in Indiana. And then there was this shop there called Fly Masters of Indianapolis. And it was literally the exit that I take home. I passed by it almost every day and had never paid attention to it. Really? a small little corner shop that you just, you would the- it's
0: like Dude, it's like, it's, like it's, like it's like a screenplay.
2: Yeah, it's almost like this entire it's strip. Like a of what I was dude. going through, but it was yeah. like there, right there, that exit, and then I pulled in that that parking lot and came in, and uh, super friendly guys in there. Uh, Derek, he's the the store manager there. He still works there to this day. Uh, big was, shout out, Derek. Huh. Big shout out to Derek. He's a great guy. He. What's he the name of the shop again? Flymasters of Indianapolis. Okay. So I went in there. Uh, now the stigma behind most fly shops is like if you don't look like you're you can spend money they kind of like ignore you because the stuff in a fly shop is expensive as heck there's no going around that yeah you think that's true it is true. not
0: the not the price but you think that the, the you think that
2: uh, like, you know it is too like yes. the
0: one time a year i go in to buy a few liters and stuff i've you know i don't know
1: as someone who managed a fly shop for a few years you know you know who's coming in to buy a spool of tippet and who's coming in to buy a rod. Got it. it, it you
3: know what? Yeah, oh. And
1: you're going to spend more time on the guy who's buying a it rod. It depends on where you're at, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Like, I mean, you've got locals that are coming in that you're seeing every you know, couple of days yeah. and they become your buddies. If for like, sure.
2: You can also got to remember the vast majority of the fly shop owners are still the old school, older guy mentality where it was like a, a, um, a gentleman's type sport. And there's a big difference in 900 a $1,000 rod versus somebody that's going to go to Walmart and buy, you know, a $50 kit. And the ones that look like they would shop at Walmart, a lot of those guys kind of like t- tend to ignore quite a bit because they don't think they're going to spend the money. Yeah. And unfortunately, that that's the case with some fly shops, not all. And unfortunately for me, that wasn't the case with Flymasters. When I went in there, they—they were they, cool. They were really cool and answer a lot of questions.
0: Okay, so if you're a dirt bag in Indianapolis <laughs> and you want to be treated with respect at your local fly shop,
1: well, not all Turn fly shops sell now. tying stuff either. Yeah, mm. because it's a million different SKUs that cost three dollars. Yeah. Uh, they, they went on. through you know a I mean? big no.
4: change, I can't pinpoint the time, but it used to be like every fly shop in order to be a fly shop, had materials. Oh, yeah. And then all of a sudden, like, I could picture a
0: wall away. in my mind's eye, right? Yeah. yeah. It's
2: actually a dying art. Uh, over in the East Coast, if you go to any of these fly fishing clubs, the average age in there is probably close to 65, 70. Now, it's different out here in the West because it's still popular with the young folks because it's it's uh, activities at most of the colleges. You go to Colorado, it's it's the vast majority you'll see on the people in the river are, you know, 19 to 30-year-olds. You go out east. Most people you see on the water with a fly rod are late Hmm. fifties, seventies. Huge disparity between the east coast and the west coast when it comes to that. It's trend. It's trendy here. You know, it's like a
0: well. It's been that way for decades. Yeah. Mm
2: -hmm. So it's
0: not even. It's not trendy. About since the time I
3: moved out here. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, but I wouldn't
0: even say it's like at a point. It's just the reality. Yeah, but it's not even trendy. It's just like it's it's Mm -hmm. a it's a discipline or a pursuit that remains alive and well in a part of the world
2: yes but unfortunately a lot of those older customer base are starting to pass away and along with them the the drive to tie flies and there aren't enough replacements coming in to basically take up the helm of all these guys there's more guys that tie flies and fly fish that are passing away than there are guys that are taking up the sport parts
0: of the u.s i want to just pause for one minute because i want to make sure i'm clear on something going into a fly shop and having the big wall of all the hackles and, you know, the Hooks dubbing, the dubbing that, that's becoming not a thing. I didn't, I didn't know this.
1: A lot of less of a thing. Yeah. A lot less of a fly thing.
4: shops have gotten rid of that because like what Brody said is it takes up a lot of retail space mm-hmm. and your, uh, return on that retail space is, is way lower. Than uh, like your soft goods or your hard goods, and so like your clothing, your waiters, stuff yep. like that, you have better margins as a retailer. On yeah, then. you
1: get someone like Son coming in, messing up all the materials, and then you spend an hour putting the <laughs> stuff, trying to out touch that. everything, <laughs> there ring
0: they ring it all up, and he's got like thirteen bucks worth of stuff.
2: Brody's, brody's got to get the ladder out
5: to get up there, but there's a big however to that because
2: depending on the market in the region of the U.S. Some shops will survive solely on tying materials mm-hmm. because yeah. the return on the tying materials is actually far superior than it is on hardware. Because you can go on there with $500 and you might walk out with a small little brown bag worth of materials. It adds up. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah, you, $5, you th- $7, You th- know, You think about that, that hackle, that whites. Uh, whiting? Whiting hackle. Like that stuff is not cheap. No, like just to buy a basic entry gate Grade Cape is 45 bucks just for one color of a specific hackle. And that's where a lot of people, when they jump into that rabbit hole, is they look at books, they'll see all the materials, and they think they have to follow exactly that material list. And those guys there will run into every fly shop, and they'll, they they want to tie this fly or that fly, and they, they will have a list. And they'll buy this hackle because this one fly calls for it. And they'll buy this. And next thing you know, you have boxes of shit that you will only have used once, ever, for one particular pattern. And then after you get into it for a couple of years, you realize you could substitute a lot of stuff that you don't have. But a lot of beginner tires don't know that. And those guys there will will keep a fly shopping business because they will spend thousands of dollars just buying materials for stuff that they might not even ever catch a fish yeah. with.
0: It's very addictive. Do you know the editor and fly tire uh, and writer Jay Nichols? You know him at all? I know the name. Yeah. I've never met him though. We, we lived together. Okay. Yeah, and I remember going out and uh shooting pine squirrels.
5: And Their tails taking, are awesome.
0: Yeah, him taking that hair and putting it in his coffee grinder, you know, <laughs> <laughs> like no, bacon, bacon, bacon <laughs> like. Because <Yep. laughs> he used to, he used to tie for the shops.
2: Yeah, right here. This is uh the claws on this crayfish are pine squirrel.
0: Okay. Yeah, he used to have like he just sit there just like, I guess what you're calling guide flies. Yeah. You know. Not all the time, but he had a lot of times would spend time just tying and tying and tying and tying to go sell them at, you know, Grizzly Hackle or whatever the hell it was.
2: Yeah, but like uh, fly shops are awesome. And for anybody that that's, hasn't gotten into fly fishing and that's looking into it, develop a relationship with your local fly shop. Because they're the ones that if you if you don't, one, they're probably going to go out of business because all the big box store competitors, is going to price them out. But if you go in there, you develop that relationship, you're going to learn where to fish where, what's biting, you know, what type of flies are actually working the time of year. You're going to learn all these things and you'll never find out in a book because it's a local expert that's helping out. And at the same time, you're also supporting your local economy. And that will help you throughout the entire journey, On whether it's time flies or picking the right gear, going to the right places to fish at certain times of year. There's just certain things that local guides know, local fly shops know that you can't ever find from Google or from a lot of them
1: do like tying seminars and yeah. classes and stuff. Did you did you do any of that at
2: at that shop in Indianapolis? Or? I did it with Healing Waters and eventually going full circle I came back to Flymasters and I did some demos for them for customers. Oh, you did? Yeah.
0: So how do you become once you got into it? Uh I guess 90 whatever, I don't know. 99% of the people that start tying flies sit down and tie what they use. Okay? And they're just it's just functional, right? You're just tying them because you want to tie the flies that you use. Uh how did it what is the jump where it becomes artistry?
2: Well, I, I mean because
0: you're no you're not known now as just a dude that can whip out a shitload of pheasant tails before he goes out fishing.
2: I wouldn't say 99%, I would probably say closer to the 50% nowadays with the uh the influx of the the new, younger generation getting into tying.
0: I mean, the people are into the artistry. Yeah, so yeah. more like your bread and butter fishermen are buying flies. Yes, and
2: tying has become like like is it is tying retro now? Tying uh, for many, like especially with guides, is a means to an end. Okay, where they're supplying their own fly boxes versus having to buy. F- Out of um, financial considerations. Yes. Okay, and then so for, that's still a thing. That's still a thing for others. It's they the flies that they tie with their patterns they know it's going to work better than anything they can buy got it so again it's still a means to an end yep and then for uh that other 50 percent, it's either for the mental health or just for the artistry the, just the i mean at the end of the day if you look at it it's adult arts and crafts that's all it is arts and crafts <laughs> for so sure.
0: what was the first fly you tied that had some sort of merit beyond just being a thing that someone would go and snag in the bush behind them and write it off as, um, as another lost fly right
2: probably again this this here will be the obsessive compulsory nature of me when i started learning uh-huh. it was through books okay healing waters helped refine all that but uh i, I was i had some books i was looking through there. fly masters of indianapolis again they gave me my first vice at no cost if, because they have, like I was telling you, on the East Coast there and the, the, even the Midwest, you have a lot of people dying off. So the, these widows don't know what, what to do with their husbands or their grandparents' stuff. So they end up just giving it to charities or fly shops or whatever. Okay. And the fly shop there runs a lot of classes and whatnot on Saturdays. So they have widows up bring in stuff all the time. So they had advice that they gave me along with the tools, some materials and whatnot. And, you know, as I'm paging through this book um
0: they gave it to you that's bad business yeah,
2: bad business <laughs> short term well, first hits free long term right? <laughs> it was good business oh is that right they, <laughs> yeah. they do what they're doing they had a repeat customer yeah gotcha. and so um i was i was lo- reading this book and reading about the history about the flies and how we got a start over there in uh, the uk and then how the the early pioneers through gordon in the early 1900s Okay. Took some of those British patterns and fashioned them to flies that would work in the fast-moving waters up there in the Catskill Mountains up in New York okay. and turn them into, you know, our modern dry flies today. So that really perked my interest because I'm such a history nerd that I, all I, I wanted to know the why is into everything. Yeah, And I read about it and I looked at this one fly and I was like, man, this fly is just gorgeous. It's a pattern called the ginger quill developed in the early 1900s. The ginger quill. Ginger quill made out with mallard. Flank wings and a stripped peacock quill body, hackle, no on yards. So I'm looking at this fly. I'm like, I got to tie this thing. So looked through the materials, didn't have it, went back to Fly Masters, bought what I needed. Came back home, started tying this fly. And it looked like something that fell out of a bull's nose. <laughs> so, but with the military background and the engineering background, it was like fur, feathers, threat, ain't going to best me. I'm going to tie this damn fly. Yeah. When it was all said no, I tied about 120 of these flies until I got it to look like <laughs> <laughs> wow. Until it looked like that fly in the book, having no idea that's not how you should start tying flies because yeah. there's very simple patterns. You start off with the woolly buggers and all right. this. I'm tying one of the most difficult flies there because in order to get those mallard flank feathers to sit right, they split real easily.
3: Mm-hmm. And
2: if you don't put the right amount of thread pressure on there, you, the feather, the um, the strands between each of those feathers will just start fraying. So it took over a hundred of these flies, and a That's lot of trips. That's why you're to, so good. A lot of trips to Fly Masters. I literally bought them out of Mallow metal of feathers until I got the fly to look right. Yeah, if you just started with a San Juan worm, things could have gone a lot Holy different, different for you. <laughs> the funny part though was I was so proud of myself. I, I like I tied this this ginger. Tell quill, me the name, ginger quill. Ginger okay, quill. Yeah, yeah. I, never I, got I never heard just that. Just like the me. one in the book, and then I discovered Google. <laughs> And I typed in ginger quill, and the modern version look <laughs> nothing like the ones that are in the book. Because oh, it had been corrupted over time. <laughs> it looks so much prettier the modern versions because we have better materials nowadays. Oh, the uh, modern version look better because of the better quality hackle and the materials. The oh. feathers you get genetic hackles where the and you're feathers...
0: you're working off some old ass book from the seventies or I, something. I'm yeah.
2: t- no, I'm taking t- working off a picture from, that was taken probably like 1905. Got it. And my fly looked nothing like the modern version. So I started all over again until I got it looking like the ones that I was selling on, uh, on Google. Imagery. Meanwhile,
0: are you at least fishing this thing too? No.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, what, what
0: else did
4: Google tell you about that fly?
0: Dude, if you just saved those hundred and we could make a big display case,
4: the
2: progression top to bottom,
0: <laughs> the hundred flies lined out, that'd be a nice little thing for the auction house of oddities. So mm-hmm. that fly
2: right there was, was the first, it was a fly that really, right there.
0: Oh, let me see this fly. Yeah.
2: Was huh, the one that really got me going down the rabbit hole.
0: I was picturing I, I when you when he Chester just showed me the picture, I was picturing something that like those old crazy Scottish like Atlantic salmon flies. Oh, like, like this right here. Yeah, like 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 Chester's crazy, not crazy. Chester's tattoo.
2: Uh, <laughs> so uh what it got Ball to sack. Uh, Ball sack. <laughs> I was tied for about 11 months now at that point. And a lot of it was just me dabbling, figuring things out on my own mm-hmm. and having no idea whether I was doing anything right or not. But no tying those flies onto the end of the leader, I, oh yeah. out, or um, you were. I was okay. fishing a lot of midges, yeah. pheasant tails, yeah. hairs ear, because- So you're
0: fishing meanwhile.
2: Yeah. I literally tied every fly that was in that book. The founding flies uh, written by this gentleman by, na- by the name of Mike Vallow from New York. So he's still around. I actually met him year- years later at a fly fishing You tied every fly in his book? I tied every fly in his book. And that included deer hair patterns, the streamers. These were all- uh it's called like basically 43 masters guys from the 1900 to the 60s that were showing their famous patterns there and i tied like each of the ones that i saw in there so i was figuring out how to do stuff i was probably doing it very wrong but i was spinning deer hair at that point because i wanted to, to mimic these irresistible atoms and whatnot and it was through a lot of trial and error uh Stacking deer one. hair, wrapping hackle. It was, a lot of it was self-taught. A lot of it was asking questions over at uh, the local fly shops. And uh, some of the guys over uh, Project Healing Waters knew some of the answers. Some didn't. And then so at 11 months, they uh, they Project Healing Waters told me there's a national fly tying competition that they wanted me to enter. And I was like, what the heck? What is it? They're like, well, just a bit, you know, five of the same patterns. And if you, you win it, you know, it's, it's good for the, the, the program, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm like, all right, sure. So I, um, uh, I tied five. Fan but wing. you're not aware that these competitions exist at this point? No. I had no, no I idea how big this was because to me, I thought it was just like a, like a local chapter thing. God, this is so much like a movie. This mm-hmm. is like the part in Karate Kid when he finds out about the karate contest. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I tied five of these fan wing um fan wing um, um quill gordons and five of the stimulators, which is very popular, was created out of here out west. And I no, submitted- hold on,
0: were you you weren't you didn't happen to be like in a romantic rivalry with another tire, Where
2: <laughs> Nobody even knew who I was. Okay, so there's not
0: like, you're not trying to win a woman's favor. I'm just thinking about the movie here. <laughs> you're not trying to win a woman's favor through fly tying.
2: Well, if you against like about a real the,
0: asshole
4: right. who's like good at tying. Well, there's somebody at the fly shop and you guys reach for the same hackle at the same time and he may have said something discriminatory or, uh, and then
2: you reunite uh, out he's at, he's at the at vice the next to you yep. yep. at the competition. Yeah. he's dating well, actually, this girl. Actually, there's a little girl. truth to that. Oh. Yeah, <laughs> Yes. <laughs> All right. There it so, is. <laughs> uh, my buddy, his name is Joe Jackson. He's from Indiana. Also, he was also a vet that got out from uh, from disabilities. There's another Joe Jackson from Indiana. Oh, generous oh, sure, sure sure so. Joe!
1: I'm, I'm, the Jackson fi- the family. That, that was, <laughs> oh. oh. Oh, <laughs> never mind. Continue. So he ended up entering the competition yeah. too. One, I didn't
4: one
0: time, Phil says something. I had no idea that he totally was. derails the conversation.
2: <laughs> <laughs> Nobody gets it. Continue. He submitted flies also, and I didn't. I didn't know that he had submitted flies. It was several people from that same program, and so they invited all the finalists. I was notified. You know, I was one of the top five finalists for this competition, and then there was this international fly tying symposium in uh, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. And they paid my way to get out there, put me up in the hotel, and then come check out the show. It was tie at the booth for a little so bit. So you have to tie them there. No, you submitted them, He's... and then there was a panel of all these like renowned uh, expert tires from across the, the US to analyze judged, the work. That analyze the work. So just seems ripe for fraud. <laughs> could be.
1: <laughs> when they do when they do analyze them, are they deconstructing
2: them or are they just looking at the They're finish? looking at them to, to see if they all look the same. Okay. If the proportions are correct. I'm surprised you don't need to tie it in front of them. Well, you eventually do that if you. Oh, had a, I see. I mean, they have a like the little booth there where you get an hour block and you sit had there. You,
1: had you worked your way up to like a real nice souped-up rotary Renzetti vice yet, or were you just working on that same one that they gave to you? That was the vice they gave me. It was a Renzetti? Oh, well, yeah, that was dang, my first they vice. They
3: gave
0: you a good one. Then I had no, no, no idea. T- t- tell me this vice again. I never heard Renzetti.
3: of it. Renzetti. It's kind of like the your, Ferrari I, of vices. I gave
1: you a.
0: My daughter's is a Renzetti.
1: Yeah, <laughs> old one. I hate to tell you, the only thing we tie on there is lead head. Well, either way. Lead head walleye jigs. That's but, like the, yeah. there's some other good companies that make them. Thank you, Brody. It. What's with all the rubber
0: bands and whatnot on
1: there? Well, because there's a little piece on there that keeps <laughs> keeps the flex on the, the jaws. And that rubber, you know what I'm talking about? Goes around the jaws. Yeah. That broke, so I just put a rubber the band little on ring. It's a Ronzetti. It's a rubber Zetti. I don't know. No, no. Ren Ranzetti.
2: Oh, Okay. Yeah, they're based out of florida uh,
0: and that's the cat's ass for uh cat's meow for vices
2: no i have i think probably you, 11 vices at home
0: what's your favorite
2: i really don't have one particular one um i use them all because they all serve a different purpose there's a couple that i bought them because they're they were cool to look at but functionally wise they weren't as good as some of the other ones but like norvice is one of the ones i use quite a bit Renzetti, uh, regal was another good one there's a lot of different companies who makes
0: the most kick-ass pair of little scissors
2: uh company would call be renowned because they're they're based off of uh, german scissors yeah and they're sharpest scissors by far i mean the the engineering behind them is phenomenal
0: now what could a what could a fella uh put into a pair of scissors uh good pair of
2: scissors 40 bucks oh yeah, I thought you were nice. gonna say something crazy. No, it's oh, 40 okay. Bucks. Okay. You you could put more money into a vice. I'm a
0: scissors like a scissors enthusiast.
2: Yeah, you want to yeah. get a pair of gnome scissors, like scissors, really good scissors. Yeah. And so uh going back onto that time competition when I was there, they started announcing all these winners off, fifth place, fourth place, et cetera. And then finally it was me and Joe left. And then they announced Joe as this, you know, the first runner up. I'm like sitting there like, like it is- didn't really even dawn on me. I was like, <laughs> yeah. everybody else is gone. And I'm still sitting there at the table Waiting by myself. Waiting to find out what you are. Yeah. And uh, that's when I'm like, the guys around me are like, "Hey, congratulations, son. And I'm like, oh shit, I won. <laughs> so they called off my name and then uh, gave me, they gave me the regal vice as one of the prizes along with certificates and all this stuff.
0: Were you like, For, first it, runner? Joe. Yeah. First
2: runner up was confusing.
0: Yeah. I remember entering an essay contest and getting the letter when I was in high school, getting the letter that I was first runner-up. I thought it meant I won. <laughs> and then someone had to be like, no, that's not what that means. And
1: you're like, despite, first. Despite, <laughs> the, despite the word first, it's like you're second. It's a more flattering way of saying second.
0: <laughs> the single most valuable tool I have for chasing turkeys next to my scattergun is the Onex Hunt app. If I'm hunting turkeys, I'm using OnX. If I'm not hunting turkeys, I'm using Onyx. I'm always using Onyx. I live by that stuff. I can't tell you the number of birds this app has put me on by allowing me to easily find new areas to hunt. It's invaluable. I use it all the time. Even properties I know super well. And I'm at my buddy Bubbly Doug's house. I'm using Onyx, and I've hunted this place a million times. With their compass mode, I can pinpoint exactly on the map where a gobble rang out from and then figure out the perfect spot to set up. Meaning, if I'm sitting there, let's say I'm at Bubbly Doug's and I'm in the navel, and I hear pow, I'll like instinctively pull up Bubbly Doug's place on, on X, and I'll look at the topography, and I'll be like, oh, that sucker must be over in that little opening over there. Waypoints also, and the ability to share them, okay, comes in handy every spring. Whether that's revisiting old waypoints where I've been on birds before or sharing them, to buddies to help put them on birds. This app will help you find more turkeys. On X Hunt has a special offer for you, too. Use code Meat Eater to receive 20% off your membership at slash hunt this turkey season. Now, a lot of you guys are familiar with the old hunting tradition of eating, you know, some organ, the heart or a chunk of liver off the first animal you kill. I had that when I was a little kid and it was a big deal. And make sure to use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. That's heartandsoil.co. Use the code MEATEATER. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors, dippers love mint straight and wintergreen all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them chili. The reason I like black Buffalo
4: pouches is one. They're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's
0: there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, Consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black buffalo tobacco alternative, bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are
2: consumers of nicotine or tobacco? So uh, first and second place ended up being two guys from the same program. It was me and Joe. But out of people from around the whole country. Yes. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Did you guys have the same mentor? Uh, he was there quite a few years longer than I was. I was just I was still relatively new there. Yeah. So I really don't know how he uh he was taught. I know he was self-taught a lot of stuff. He does a lot of deer hair stuff also. Yeah. Okay. But he was very involved with the program at that point, and I was like the new guy coming in. And so, what was the
0: average? These guys that are tying in this in this competition, were you guys were you guys relatively young?
2: Uh, I was always relatively old compared to most other. Oh, guys. you were
0: to, to other tires? Yeah, yeah. Uh,
2: that are in the program. Most of these guys are either veterans that that did you know three years, got out with some disability, or got injured in their seventh year. So you had the vast majority of them. Or probably, I mean, it's going kind to of vary between programs, um, mid-30s to mid-40s. Yep. Um, but,
0: but, you, but I guess that's great, and that's an interesting thing, and that I, I, I could appreciate that because you stayed in for so long. But what I meant was the fly-tying, the competitive fly-tying community in general, 10s old? Yeah. Okay.
2: Yeah, so... Got um, to know if the eyesight thing eventually bombs you out, or... It does, but they, they make cheaters and everything you can wear yeah. for them. Like I, I have really good eyesight. I mean, I've always seen about 2015 or so. Um, So I had I have that advantage with my eyesight. But the other part to it was like uh, back then, it was one huge competition where first place was against everybody, whether you've been tying for six months or you've been tying for six years. There was no difference. Nowadays, they break it down by beginner, intermediate, advanced. Mm-hmm. So it was pretty cool um, to to have basically uh, won that competition and that opened up the can of worms from there because they started announcing it. I I started my my first social media page because I was still using like mass emails to attach pictures of flies that I'll send it to my buddies. It's like, hey, look at this one, look at this one. They're like, dude, why don't we just open up a social media account so everybody just look at it without having to open up emails and whatnot. That's how I ended up starting. The Instagram account was just so that people would look at these. And what is the Instagram account? It's a uh, son underscore towel. And, um, so they, they started looking at these flies and next, you know, like I get these notifications and so-and-so was following you was like, what the hell is this person doing? <laughs> I didn't know what it was. And I started getting these messages and I had no idea what a DM was. And then it was my cousin that, that told me, Hey, somebody just likes what you're posting up on there. And eventually I had a question. If somebody could ask me if I could demonstrate. They're like,
4: it. don't worry. You don't have to go kick their ass. Yeah. <laughs>
2: Like, they're, they're just like, what you're doing? <laughs> I thought it was just my friends that were following this account. I didn't realize that strangers could just follow your account. So um, somebody had asked me to post a, a like, a uh, detail how I, I tie in a specific technique. It was like hackle wrapper or something like that. So I tried to explain it, but it, t- it was taking too long. So I just recorded the video and I posted it up there. And then the next, you know, like this video had like a, over a thousand likes. And I was on social media at that point for like three months or something like that. So I was like, wow, a thousand people like this. And so I started posting more of these videos and these, these flies and, uh, the, I guess the algorithm loved these little videos or whatever. And the account just like, like really blew up. And then, uh, in the span of like six years, it, you know, went up to somewhere in 80,000 some range now. And then in the fly fishing or in the grand scheme of things, it's not a whole lot, but for the fly fishing industry itself, it's equivalent to probably having like a million followers in like a bass industry because fly fishing is so small. yeah And so... But, not the, this, but this is like the fly tying world. Tying and fishing, because yeah. uh, the uh, one difference with my account is I try to mix in the fish that I catch Got along it. with the flies that I tie. Got it. And then it's flies that, that are proven patterns that work. It's just I show the techniques, and it's basically 60-second video is what they boil down to on how to do the major portions of these. I'll speed up the mundane stuff with the wraps, and yep. then I'll slow it down on... The more intricate parts and then somebody that has a general idea how to tie they could basically capture how to tie this fly in a span of like 60 seconds versus having to sit through you know 15 20 30 minute youtube videos on a tutorial so somebody just wants the the basic idea of how to do something they were looking at these videos and uh over the course of that time i got to to meet quite a few cool people in the industry a lot of the, like i met that author uh, he knew who i was and it was his book that got. Sold. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Same deal with like. Uh, God, that's a good part of the movie, too, right?
5: <laughs>
2: <laughs> manufacturers of most of these uh, vices, like uh, when I went to Sims with Warriors and Quiet Waters Foundation, uh-huh. I mean, I'd be remiss if I didn't bring them up I and mean, we talk about that a little more in a minute. But when I first came here for uh, my first outing with uh, Warriors and Quiet Waters, they took us to the Sims Factory to outfit us with with uh, sims gear and long give us you know fly rods and whatnot taking vets at that point i was already fishing for a little bit but a lot of vets come here and they never done it before so when i went there a lot of the guys that were working at sims knew who i was from mm-hmm. from the social media aspect of it, and that was really kind of cool yeah yeah so uh, one of the guys uh, he doesn't work there anymore his name is brent but he came over he was like man do you have any flies with you and i was like yeah i got my flight box out here and my my pack and he's like can i check them out so, so i was like yeah sure brought him in there and he's looking through all these flies like you can have them when he's and he still has them on his mantle he lives here in bozeman and but he never fished them he kept them so i didn't realize that you know tying flies can have that much of an impact for some people and there are people that really love the artistry and the uh the work that's behind in concept of fly the longest time there for me it was just basically a way to relax and a way to catch fish do i don't you, have a single fly that's framed do uh, you uh yeah. will you fish with a fly tied by someone else, or is that? No, oh, I, I have no problems doing that. Okay, yeah. I won't fish with flies that are tied uh, overseas in the sweatshops, right? Because they're they're garbage. I'm sorry. I didn't garbage. know
0: that that was a thing till till a couple of years ago. That that had become a that, 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 that There's a couple of countries that where, where is, it? is it somewhere? Sri like, Lanka, Sri Lanka, mm-hmm. and then somewhere Taiwan, in Africa, right?
2: Yeah, uh, Kenya. Now, there's some companies that are very good and they take very good care of those workers, and
3: some aren't. What percentage of flies in these fly shops do
2: you think are tied overseas? Oof, 90, I bet. I would say probably close to 95%. Much lower in some of the local shops here. For example, like a huge fly fishing community like, like Montana and Bozeman, a lot of the fly shops here probably maybe 50%, maybe a little bit more so the really good ones will will support local tires and then there are some people that tie commercially and that's all they do eight hours a day is just tie flies for shops i mean i'd rather stick a spoon in my eye than do that for eight hours but no <laughs> yeah. there's there's people that do that for a living and there's gotta they, be
0: like a carpal tunnel component to that that shit, too man. and then just
2: yeah. the uh for me the i would get bored doing the same repetitive. yeah when you get an yeah. order
1: for yeah
2: that's when I don't 20 tie dozen prince
1: nymphs and you just gotta do the same. I got a lot
2: of people that ask me the tie flies, how much do I sell them for? And I don't sell flies for that. So reason.
0: you don't make any jingle off fly tying?
2: Uh no. I don't sell anything, make any money off of it. I just do it basically I enjoy it. You don't now, so
0: you like you don't you don't make like you don't just sell where I could just buy this as a person that collected flies. No.
2: Now, there are times where I will put together like a shadow box or something like that or tie like two or three dozen flies for silent auctions and charities. And then because I don't sell flies, then those, those shadow boxes, those flies that are meant for fishing and whatnot, they go for an astronomical amount that helps those organizations out. So maybe one the two times a year, I'll offer flies for sale to help out uh, a cause. Like I did one here for Warriors and Quiet Waters Foundation several years ago. And then they, um, they paired it up with, you know, nine and nine rounds of golf with Jordan Spieth. And so they pair, they do that with alumni where we'll, some guides will take other people out on a trip. I, I donated flies mm. and then I do some for, uh, healing waters. Like I still stay active with them and then donate flies for, uh, the fly fishing film tour in, in Indianapolis. And they have a silent auction there. And generally, uh, one of those shadow boxes can go for as much as like 500, $600 because people want some of these flies and I don't have them for sale. So, so you, you know, just
0: live off your army money.
2: Uh, not totally. I mean, I would be lying if I said uh, that because like on Facebook and on TikTok for videos, I get paid for some of the views. Oh, so, I see. Okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, so there's some secondary income that comes off of that. I mean, it's not, you can make a living off of it per se, because I don't have like the millions of followers on YouTube or whatever, but it it's enough to, to pay for a fishing trip here or there.
0: So now that you're retiring from, now that you're retiring from the army, what's your plan?
2: Well, uh. A lot of it's going to be boiled down to what my wife wants to do because for 22 years, she, well, she's, her and the kids have followed me around the country and then pretty much had really no say in the matter other than where we're going to live once we got there. So they're going to play a big part of it. I know they're more tempted to go back up to the Northeast, to be close to the family because my mom's starting to get up there in years. and My sister, my brother lives there. But there are some opportunities. Uh, I, I do want to get into the outdoor industry. I cannot go back into the engineering world anymore. There's no way I could sit in a, a freaking cubicle for eight hours a day after spending the last 20 years in the military. So there are some offers that I've had for most of it's for guides. Uh, some of the work in fly shops, for services, stuff like that. I mean, there, there's one offer here in Montana working with Healing Waters Lodge. Uh basically Mike Gary offered me to be one of the guides on his expeditions through the Smith river. He gets the large portion of the permits that go through there. Mm. And so he's always looking for vets to hire and, uh, another ones to help a buddy that runs a guide business in Wyoming up there in the Northwest and the Tetons doing some of those cutthroat type trips. Uh so right now it's, it's still very fresh because the decision was, you know, finally made, uh, that. We're going to retire next year, and so uh, at this point right now, I'm just trying to figure out all the different options before I finally decide on which one I want to do. Retirement make you nervous? It does, because after doing, it's almost like prison, <laughs> the military. You've had a structured lifestyle for 20 years, and now suddenly all that's going to go away, and you're going into that civilian force, and you're on your own. So, Mm -hmm. yeah, anybody that says otherwise that was in the service, uh, they're lying. All
4: all my buddies say it's hard. It's hard. And I mean, for for years, right, after. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's a challenge, right? The
2: other challenge is uh, basically because I've always been in charge of large groups of people for so long now that everybody had to listen to, you know, orders that I gave. And going to civilian workforce, it ain't going to be like that. I might have to work for an idiot that is no better than somebody that should be sitting by a dumpster yeah. somewhere. But Yeah, Bill, like, you should be licking my boots, buddy. <laughs> and I'm going to end up being a subordinate to them and I have to bite my tongue. So those are things that, you know, I am concerned about because uh, somebody didn't like something or I didn't like some the way somebody's doing something, I'd give them an earful. And then they would fix their, their shit. And that's how it's, the military works. That's where the discipline comes in. And I realize, I'm not an idiot, and I realize you can't do that in the civilian workforce, but that does scare the shit out of me, too, having to work for people potentially that have no business being in charge of others.
0: I got a friend, I tell this story all the time. I don't know if I've ever mentioned it on the show here, but I have a friend who retired from the Army, and then one of his teammates retired from the Army, and right away his teammate killed himself. Yeah. And I texted him, I said, I said he, we were texting about this and i always remember the text that was kind of one of the most compelling sentences I've ever received in a text message. As I said, I don't understand like, what is that? Why does that happen like that? And his reply was, it was the wild West during those war years. And then it's over in an instant. And that was all that's in his mind, sufficed as an
2: explanation. It's a really difficult subject to talk about because it's such a huge problem with veterans. I mean, there's all sorts of different stats. I'm not gonna bore anybody with these different stats, but on average, you know, you have veterans that are over 50% likelier than their civilian counterparts that never served to commit suicide. And the f- early parts of the war, he, he's very correct. They threw you into the, um, the Wild Wild West, you come back and there was no support system. For example, my first deployment, we were the theater QRF in Iraq. They had no, basically, uh, area of operations assigned for us specifically. So every time there was a major engagement going on somewhere or things were about to flare up, they would move my entire battalion to that engagement, not realizing that all these different engagements, firefights that we were getting to would have a toll. And so those were things that people never thought about back then. Like, my battalion there probably got into more campaigns than any other unit there in the history of the Iraq war, because we were just like the theater courier for everything bouncing around. We didn't stay anywhere for longer than 35 days. And so you have a bunch of young men and women that, you know, some of them 17 years old, 18 years old, and they're seeing firefights and deaths for the first time. IEDs going off the whole nine yards, local civilians getting blown up, all sorts of shit. And, uh, so we did that for 14 months. If things weren't bad enough, they had initially told the unit we were going to be home by Christmas because it was going to be 12 months at that mark.
4: Which is kind of a big deal for people. Yeah.
2: It was something to look forward to. So we were all looking forward to it. We're going to be home by Christmas. we telling our loved ones, et cetera. And then the first elections happened in Iraq in 2005, and they extended us for an additional couple, three months. And they moved us to another area up there in Mosul to help oversee the security for these first elections. So Christmas went out the window and we ended up being there for 14 months. Before the 15 month deployments were even the thing, they were extending units. There was like a unit up in Alaska that were on their way home and got rerouted back. Yeah, so they had family members that were waiting at the airport. Talk about and, some phone calls, man. Oh yeah, I mean- Holy shit. There was zero shits given about the repercussions of some of these actions because the war had to be fought. As soldiers, you know, it sucked, but we did, we did what we were told. So you, we went through all that. We get back, and you basically start taking 30 days of leave right away. Now, the military is like a melting pot of all different cultures, upbringings, backgrounds, and whatnot. You have some kids that never had a friend in their life, and now suddenly they're surrounded by people that are watching their six all the time, and they have a support system there. They're going through all this crap, getting into these engagements, getting into these firefights, seeing him, all sorts of stuff, but they had buddies there that were dealing with the same stuff. And that's why it makes the military is very unique. The only other s- agencies that are very similar to that is like some of the, the, uh, HRTs, uh, SWAT, because they go through a lot of crap too. And so any, any, uh, organization that goes through a lot of heartache and a lot of suck fest, in essence, the people get closer because you're enduring that same pain and all the the horrible things that go with it. And so that's why the inventory is very unique, like special forces community and uh, all the branches, whether it's the SEALs, the Air Force, whatever. It's a very close-knit group because all the things that you're dealing with, somebody else is dealing with too. So you have these young kids that had fellow buddies that were dealing with all that, so they never felt like they were alone. We get back from these deployments and then everybody's, scattered to the four winds. And now suddenly you have these kids that never had a friend in their life until they joined the military or by themselves for 30 freaking days after just going through all that crap overseas. And then those, those demons start coming and they start getting those nightmares. They start hitting the, the bottle. They start taking drugs. And there's, there's a major problem with basically uh, suicide because the initial part of it was the PTSD from combat soldiers. Nowadays, the vast majority of soldiers that are committing suicide and active duty have never been deployed. Mm. Veterans that have gotten out, some deployed, some don't. The vast majority have, they have PTSD or from deployments. But there was never really a good support system in place for that entire global war on terror on how to deal with soldiers come back from wars. We didn't learn a damn thing from the Vietnam War because those Vietnam vets came back with the same shit. They were dealing with the same issues, soldiers from World War One, World War Two. So you're talking about the entire history of America's wars, and we didn't learn a thing. Basically, soldiers were just once you were done with you and they spit you out, you're off on your own. And society didn't really know how to deal with soldiers and having all these 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 different issues and demons. And for the soldiers, when you when we have a tendency to do something, we don't half as it, we just go full bore. It was no different with suicide. There's a difference between crying out for help and if you actually want to commit suicide, soldiers will do it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times, uh, there are some that have warning signs that you could tell there's something wrong. And then, uh, just be, be a buddy and ask direct, are you going to hurt yourself? Is some, is everything okay? Just be direct. But there are other ones that will hide all those demons and have no idea that you have no idea that they're contemplating suicide in the side of their brains because they would put on that facade and, um, I ran across that multiple times. My last unit over in Colorado, we had five suicides in a, our battalion alone in one year, and none of those kids deployed. What's the battalion size? Battalion size was roughly about 900. And mm. five suicides in one year. We had I think it was close to 11 in three years. And these were most of these kids were 19 and 25, never deployed. So it's it's there's trauma that that. Soldiers that deployed have, and there's also trauma that soldiers never deployed have because the lifestyle sometimes is enough for soldiers to push them one way or another. And a lot of vast majority, and I think this also applies probably to all civilians too, where you start mixing alcohol, drugs, financial, marital issues. Uh, Those are usually the big ones right there that will push people towards suicide. And you combine those things together, you're talking about a recipe for disaster. And unfortunately, the stigma with seeking help is still st- strong and prevalent to this day. For the longest time for my vast majority of my military career, if you told somebody you had to go see a behavioral health specialist for some mental health stuff, you were labeled. And then you were basically like an outcast. Mm. And then the military eventually realized that was wrong. And then they started encouraging people to go seek uh, help to deal with all these issues without having any repercussions. But for a while, there there were repercussions if you sought medical assistance for mental health. But even though people say, no, nobody's gonna judge you for that, there's still that strong stigma. And people are afraid of being labeled or having that stigma. And I think it's military and civilian side. But I'm telling you, it's like, no matter how bad it is, it's never that bad where your life is not that important. And there's a lot of different agencies out there that can help you. The most important ones, like I said, are the ones that are available 24 hours a day, regardless of where you're at. And you can talk to them and nobody will know. 988 is a really good one. So, uh, Say that one again? 988. Uh, you could text, call, or chat, and it's completely anonymous, and they're available. 988. Yeah. Um, sure, Corinne will you mean, publish. It's like 911, but different. Just text 988. Yep. And then- uh, Can you
6: explain a little bit about that one? And I'll I'll put a list of- Uh, organizations and resources in the show notes but if we can verbalize some of that on air it'd be helpful
2: they're uh they're available to military and civilians it's to everybody and if you ever are feeling down and you think that you may possibly hurt yourself uh you could text call or chat with somebody and then they will get you professional help at no cost to you and it's available 24 hours a day uh the other one stop soldier suicide they have the uh the 1-800 number, that's also 24 hours a day uh, where you get professional health for active duty military, regardless of branch. And then those that are transitioning within our, uh, 365, basically one year from the time of your separation and under, you could also utilize militaryonesource.com. I know a lot of my fellow brothers and sisters don't like that stigma of seeking behavioral health. So if you go to Military One Source, you will get five... Uh, Counseling sessions with a professional that's completely anonymous that never gets reported to your chain of command, mm. so that way you can get that help. Uh, but there, the VA also has a hotline that you can call. There's there's multiple agencies. Like Corinne uh, said, she'll she'll publish a list. But your life is important because the minute you're gone, you leave a void in somebody's life. And, I mean, it's a difficult subject to talk about, but it's it's a reality. And then the problem is there's a lot of leaders that don't know how to deal with it. Mm -hmm. So they either brush it off, turn a blind eye to it. And then leaders also fail to change with the times. So like this current generation, like I label, I I know people hate label, but I call them the me generation because everything's instantaneous with the push of a button. You want something tomorrow, Amazon one day delivery. Within two days, you're going to have something else. Everything is instantaneous at the touch of the phone. So social media and smartphones are have been great to the network and reach out to others, but also it's been a curse because you could hide behind being an anonymous person behind that and show a different facade. And then, uh, the same deal with when you start suffering it through, through all these mental pains or life issues you're dealing with, just like ordering something instantaneously, you could just not deal with it instantaneously. And it, it needs to stop. And the only way it can stop is to educate people that it's okay to have issues. And, to seek out that help because everybody, regardless, you know, what we may joke about has an important role to play because there's people that care about and that's military and civilians alike. Well, man, I appreciate the, you being so open about it. It's it's tough. And uh, there's some things, you know, I'll be blunt. I don't like talking about it because it brings back bad memories. Mm -hmm. It brings back uh, people that I've cared about, but I feel it's important. Because there's so many people that are taking away their lives way too soon, not realizing there's more to come. Uh, I've gone through my fair share of heartache too and try to utilize different means to drown out that pain. And I still get nightmares nowadays. But at the same time, you have to find uh, basically an outlet, like a... A useful outlet, I don't know what the right word is, but something constructive. And for me, it was fly fishing. Mm -hmm. Uh, For me, it's being outdoors, whether it's taking photographs, because I love photography also, or hiking, or whatever the case may be. And then my kids are another big part of that. For you, it might be something else. But you have to find something that is constructive means if you're so focused, because for so long I was focused on just military, 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 combat, combat, combat. And then I was destroying my own self. If you go down that route, that, that route then you're, you're going to be in a dark place. So regardless of whether you're in your service for the first year or you're in your tw- 15th, 20th year service, find a constructive outlet because you have to do something that will take your mind off of all the crap that you deal with on a day-to-day basis. And if you're not in the service, same deal. It's no different. It's anybody out there, you can have some type of constructive hobby. That's why hunting and fishing is so great for that.
6: And there, there are organizations <clears throat> like Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, uh, Armed Forces Initiative, others that um, are in the outdoor industry that uh, are vet support. I know that you um, work with uh, Warriors and Quiet Waters a lot, too. So feel fr- free to share about that.
2: Yeah, so um, I came here, gosh, it was like, I think 2017 or 2018, And the program was a little bit different then. They brought, I think it was six of us veterans. There were three Navy SEALs guy, two other guys that were out of the service altogether because uh, of injuries they had sustained. And then you had volunteers. Some were prior military. Some had kids that were in the military. My, my buddy that was, that was partnered with me was a gold star family member where he had a, a son that died in combat. But to honor his son, he wanted to give back still, so he was a volunteer there over the Quiet Waters Ranch, and they brought us in together. And then they um, they basically immersed us into fishing, teaching us how to to fish. And then it's just like most most veterans, like the first day, nobody's really talking because you don't know who's who. Mm. Day two, they start chatting a little bit, and by day three, they're talking to their buddies, the the volunteers. And then by day four, everybody's hugging and laughing. By day five, people are sharing their experiences, and it, it's it gets to be pretty emotional this, because you think that you're going through some shit, and you hear some of these stories uh, of what people are dealing with. Like the one guy there that was at that ranch uh, during my first encounter with Quiet Waters, he had entire his entire insides like blown out backwards, and he was he was in pain all the time. The scars that he had there because like missing parts of his intestines and whatnot. Sal, he's He uh, was a vet that lost both legs from California. He came back here. and Now he's one of the program leads that over there at Quiet Waters Ranch. They do a lot for veterans and they immerse them here in Montana and show them that there's ways to heal through the outdoors. But the great thing about those organizations like Quiet Waters is like when you're done with the program, you're not done. They don't just like check you off. Like I still stay in contact with Jesse, who I met, you know, in 2008, I'm going fishing with him tomorrow. And you're part of that outreach or that reach uh their outreach to you is all year long. And you're just because you went through there, you're not forgotten. Mm-hmm. You're always gonna be an alumni. And I've came back again a couple of years later. It was last year. I floated the Smith River with them and then co insigned this podcast here to go to uh Warrior Taste Fest this Friday to reconnect with uh a lot of the members there or the volunteers and there's 16 alumni that are coming back. So They're one of the great organizations out there. There's there's a lot of them. Um, We don't have time to show the mention of all these different veterans organizations, but there's a lot of organizations out there that will help. And uh, regardless of your level of expertise, you can have no idea what you're doing, and they'll teach you everything you need to know. The same deal with if you don't have any interest in fishing, there's hunt for a purpose. They'll teach you how to hunt. They'll teach you how to fire uh, a rifle. They'll teach you how to use a bow.
0: Warriors for Quiet Waters, I went and gave a talk there because they're doing some stuff on hunting right now. Yeah. Yep.
2: They uh, they have a, like basically, I think it's a six-month hunting program Yep, where you, they teach you the fundamentals of hunting from you know selecting equipment to all the way to the end result to stalking and firing that boat.
3: A lot of those guys probably know their way around a rifle pretty well already though, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs>
0: yeah. Let me uh, hit you with one last question. 22, you've been married 22 years?
2: No, no, I've been married uh, 18 years. 18 years. Yep. I met her after being in service for about four years.
0: Hit us with some marriage, hit hit me
2: with your best marriage advice. Uh, You're never the boss. That's the God honest truth.
0: This goes out to men and women?
2: Men and women, but mainly to the men because most (laughs) of the men thinks they wear in the family, uh, the pants in the family. Uh, How I kept my marriage together compared to most other soldiers is every time I deployed, I came back like a different person. And then while I'm gone, despite what you may think, life goes on. There's still bills that have to be paid. There's still kids that need to be fed. There's still diapers that got to be changed. And your significant other is the one that's doing all that while you're going out there fighting for your country. So when you come back and you try to basically take over all those same responsibilities again, you're about to get into a boxing match because they also changed. They got used to you being gone. They got used to handling all that shit that you used to do. So you have to ease yourself back into it you yeah. can't them. come
0: in pissing on your post
2: nope yeah. and that's how I'm um, like that was the success to my marriage is coming back and then allowing her to still do whatever she wanted to do while I was gone and then if she wanted me to take over something she would vocalize it i never pretended like i was in charge i knew after my first deployment there i was no longer in charge because yep. she was strong enough to handle an entire household with kids while i was gone um
0: cuz i travel a lot for work and have the whole time I've, you know, known my wife, uh, she, a while ago came up with a thing where she said, if it's not going to be a big deal when you leave, it's not
2: going to be a big deal when you come home. <laughs> and there's a lot, there's a lot to that. <laughs> hey, can I, I also had one thing before we end it. Um, so with fly fishing, regardless of, uh, your level of expertise when it comes to it, there's uh, these shows that float around all over the U.S. If you ever want to dip your fingers into it, just check what it's like uh, to see some tying or s- see people demonstrate casting. There, uh, the Fly Fishing Show has shows all across the U.S. from California, all the way to Massachusetts, down to Georgia. And then during my first exposure with this show, I met a lot of really, really great people all across the industry. I met several people from Montana, out of California, all over. Like you get tires that come over from Europe, to come there uh-huh. and these different authors. And then one of the uh, great organizations that I met well over there is uh, Uncharted Outdoors Women. They're based out of Colorado. And they're also trying to break the stigma of having women in the outdoor industry where there's a, they, they take it upon themselves to take women fly fishing, taking them on hunts, hunt, whether it's duck, geese, uh, animal calls, so uh, my friend Aaron spearheads all that, and she basically uh, takes takes the role of like the lead for Colorado, Montana, Oregon, Wyoming. She just does all this stuff here to get more women out there. So there's a huge stigma that this is a male-dominated industry. It is so far from the truth. Yeah, you have some idiots out there that may say that, but we welcome all genders, regardless of whether you're male or female. Pick up a bow, pick up a rifle, pick up a fly rod. You're welcome in this industry. And I just had to give that shout out to Aaron and them. Thanks, man. Good luck fishing tomorrow. Hopefully. It should be a good time of year with a hopper season here in September. This is like literally probably the best month to fish here in Montana. Got some cooler taps. Yeah. And then, uh, so here's a little unknown fact. Useless fact that I'm really good at (laughs) is these hoppers, grasshoppers, crickets or whatever... They have a parasite called a horsehair worm that they ingest when they eat grass. Okay, they grow. You're in, throwing a hot tip at hot us, right? Tip now. A hot tip is okay. back. And they grow into this parasite inside the the the, the grasshopper, or the crickets, or whatever. And then when it's time for those parasites to breed, they take over those hoppers' brains and they make them jump into the water, and commit kamikaze suicide, so that they can basically expel themselves out of the hopper and then get find a mate. Lay eggs in the grass and the cycle starts all over again because when the water level drops, grasshoppers eat the grass, they get infected again. So that's why grasshoppers jump in the water at this time of year and dry dropper rigs work. I thought
0: water. it was all accident. I thought he meant to land somewhere else but landed in the water. They all
2: land in the water for that reason because those horsehair worms need the water in order to find a meat. So hmm. that's why September... At early October. my kids
0: must be infected with that parasite
2: <laughs> always
0: they always laying up. in the water no matter what they're doing all right man thanks for coming on man it's been a great conversation i really appreciate it and I appreciate all the you know I don't want to call it advice but the guidance for people who might be who might be in a you know in a bad state of affairs but fear that stigma or fear reaching out so i think it's 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 great for you to speak to it from that from that position of having been there so thank
2: you yeah like if i reach one vet that's listening to the this podcast or watch the youtube then you know i don't care how much it hurts to talk then it, it was worth it all right thank you
5: thank you Done beat, death, so done, beat this damn horse to death. So take your new one and ride on. We're done, beat this damn horse to death. So take your new one and ride on.
0: Hey, if you follow wildlife news at all, you're probably aware that the island of Maui has an incredible abundance of Axis deer, so much so that they're causing ecological damage. Well, Maui Nui venison is thinning out some of those Axis deer herds and delivering venison sticks and fresh cuts to your door. Visit mauinuivenison.com. That's M-A-U-I-N-U-I venison.com. Use promo code MEATEATER for 20% off your order.